Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was released in 2019. It boasts 10 Academy Award nominations and stars Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. Let's dive in. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. And today we are doing Quentin Tarantino's ninth feature film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And today, James made us some delicious frozen margaritas to celebrate. Bunch of goddamn hippies! Bunch of hippies! Bunch of goddamn fucking hippies! It's a broad road! <laughs> so thank you for this delicious beverage. It's great. You're welcome. It's a guava-infused mezcal frozen margarita. Love that mezcal. And we both kind of dressed as best as we could as Rick Dalton. I mean, as Cliff Booth. You're Cliff Booth in the third act with the white pants, black shirt. Mm-hmm. I'm Cliff Booth in the first act with a jean jacket, and it's already toasty. However, it did not make us any more handsome. (laughs) (laughs) Now i got a ways to go. Now, once upon a time in Hollywood, we had the privilege and honor to see this last week at Quentin Tarantino's theater that he owns in Hollywood called the New Beverly Cinema. If you're ever in L.A., I highly recommend checking it out and seeing a movie there. Projected on 35-millimeter film, his own personal print of... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, my goodness, it was a magical experience. I had one of the most fun experiences in a theater in years seeing this film. And after seeing this movie, I think I'm at six or seven times. I, it's up there for, like, I think, my one of my favorite Quentin Tarantino movies. And I've, I've seen Inglorious Bastards there a month ago. I've seen Pulp Fiction this year. Obviously, I've seen all of his movies a dozen times each, but man, every time I watch this one, it gets better with each viewing. The cool thing about the new Bev is when you watch a Tarantino movie there, he actually goes from person to person and gives them a back rub during the film. <laughs> no, it's a foot, foot rub. rub. <laughs> foot rub, Anthony, foot rub. No, but it's uh, it's always great to see uh, films from the past in that theater because no one, no other theater is really doing it, as, especially not as, uh, as often as they are. And having just seen Inglorious and Once Upon a Time, I, I, I hold it that Inglorious is his best movie, I would say. And then Once Upon a Time... I would say it's his most entertaining and it's just most fun movie that he's ever made. And it's hilarious. It's just so such a good time. And it really is an underrated DiCaprio performance. I know Brad Pitt won the Oscar and won a bunch of accolades and got so much attention. Leo got nominated, yeah. I believe, yes. But he is so goddamn good as this guy who is just falling apart and he's just a raging alcoholic. And, <laughs> but Leo does so many great little things in his performance and his physicality that seeing it on the big screen, you get to see, once again, the intricacies of the performances because it's a huge screen compared to watching it at home and what have you. So you can really see the details and you can see what Leo is doing in every moment and it just cracks me up. Like the way he, as uh, as Albertino's character Schwartz is tearing apart his life and he just and, and Rick just nervously drinks his water. It just gulps I, it. I cackle. <laughs> I was cackling in the theater. It's so funny. Yeah, everyone heard you. <laughs> I was the only one. <laughs> I was the only one who laughed at that part. Um, but on top of that, seeing it on a big screen, it lets you take in the attention to detail. Because this came out in December. No, it came out last year. It came out in the summer in 2019? Yeah, not last year. 2019. Summer, tw- summer 2019. So there were a lot of movies to see. So it's not like... An, we, I don't think we saw it three, like three times in theaters. So seeing it again in theaters, you can see the attention to detail and the world building and, you know, actually transforming Los Angeles and most notably Hollywood into uh, the 1970s and Sunset Boulevard and just physically transforming it, not 
using CGI, not using green screens, um, using the sounds of the era, using these old radio commercials. He actually got the master tracks for a bunch of old advertisements from some of the radio stations that he grew up listening to. And he just infused so much of the era into the movie that it just really does feel like a time machine. And it also goes to the cinematography as well. It doesn't look like it was shot in a modern style. It looks like it was shot very much, for the most part, in the style of a movie back then. But obviously with modern technology. Um, but still, it's just uh, an incredible film to behold. I think it's one of his best-looking films as well. And the cast is just so good. And what's cool about this is it's got a lot of newcomers um, inter- no- most notably Margaret Qualley and Austin Butler. Generally, he always has veterans, but to see these newcomers come in and really hold their own against the heavy hitters was great. Well, I, well newcomers to QT movies. That's what I mean. Yeah, okay, QT, gotcha. Because yeah. Yeah, Austin Butler's a child star, man. Yeah. He's on yeah, a Disney TV show, actor. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, guys. No. <laughs> we didn't watch I didn't watch him. <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out in 2019 on IMDb. It is a 7.6. That's with over 750,000 ratings. Ron Tomatoes, it is an 85% critic score. 70% audience score. What? Damn. 10 Academy Award nominations, including two one wins. One for Brad Pitt for Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role, as well as Production Design for Barbara Ling and Nancy Haight. On a budget of $90 million, this is Quentin Tarantino's second highest grossing film, earning $377 million at the global box office, second only to Django Unchained, and... After a meteoric five-year rise to the top of the cutthroat world of dazzling Hollywood and a long decade of treading water, the once young and popular action star Rick Dalton finds it difficult to swallow that the rapacious and always hungry for new blood film industry can do without him. Sensing that his career may be nearing its end, Rick, along with his sympathetic confidant and former stunt double Cliff Booth, faced the grim possibility of a mundane new life in an ever-changing 1969 Los Angeles. Now, unlike his glamorous next-door neighbors, the young director fresh off the triumphant success of Rosemary's Baby, Roman Polanski, and rising star of The Wrecking Crew, Sharon Tate, Rick has to make a difficult decision. Of course, none of them is aware of that, that their fates and their very lives are on a collision course with a certain Charles Manson and his army of ferociously zealous believers, the Manson family. Will Hollywood ever be the same after August 9th, 1969? That's a great synopsis I found by Nick Regatta. So thank you so much for that synopsis. That was terrific. And for me, again, this is – every time I watch it, it seeps higher up in my list of is this Quentin Tarantino's best movie. I always also say that Inglorious Bastards is his best movie. However, I've seen them both in the last month at the same theater and i'm oh man fucking once upon a time in hollywood man this movie slaps it's so goddamn good it's such a banger it's ambitious it's rich with so much detail and it's got layers it's every shot every scene every piece of dialogue there's so much going on it's hilarious astounding production from a filmmaking standpoint this is one of the best you'll see the last five years fucking bonkers third act incredible first hour so entertaining Warning, there will be lots of cussing in this episode because we gotta, we got to stay true. And we're so drinking. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we've had a margarita into Quentin Tarantino movies. So get to hear a lot of bunch of, bunch of fucking goddamn hippies. <laughs> and I adore this movie. And these characters are so incredible. Rick Dalton, Cliff Booth. Every time I watch this movie, it's like seeing an old friend. You reminisce about the old days. You laugh a lot. And then you torch a hippie in a goddamn pool. It's so much fun. It's interesting that you say it's seeming up to be your your favorite Tarantino film, and it's definitely up there for me. It's one of my favorites. It's, it might be my top three now. However, 
it looks like it is the most misunderstood of his movies because on Letterboxd it's only three point eight, and then it is it's it's his um, eighth ranked film on Letterboxd. On Letterboxd, it's number eight on all of his filmography. What was the IMDb score again? Seven point six. So that's pretty low for a Tarantino movie. Yeah, it seems like the film is misunderstood by audiences. I and I wonder why because it is so so much fun. And there's some excellent, excellent conflicts and terrific characters. I wonder why it's so misunderstood, because those are just av- those are average ratings, you know. And I would say it might be because it's not so much of a plot-driven movie. Possibly that's why audiences might misinterpret it. But I really, I think this is a special movie, even in his filmography, because movies like this they don't get made anymore. And they never will get made again like this until he does his last film, obviously, which is also going to be set in the 70s. So you'll see similar trademarks to this. But what I mean by that is in this movie, you have so many sequences and so many scenes of just about character, just about world building that have nothing to do with plot at all. And I'm talking about them walking around. I'm talking about Sharon taking a book at a bookstore. I'm talking about Cliff driving for probably 20 minutes in total in this movie. Um, There's just so many aspects to the film that just showcase the life of the characters. And in my opinion, makes you really empathize with them and feel like they are real human beings. And it really adds to the illusion of the world being real because they're not scenes that you would see in a typical modern movie where scenes are generally plot-driven for the vast majority of them. And this film is very much the opposite and uh, I think that Tarantino is clearly the only one who can get away with it at this kind of a scale. There are other filmmakers that kind that can do stuff like this, but on a much smaller budget, much smaller scale. But Tarantino, like actually rebuilding Los Angeles physically to shoot this movie, this movie had a, over a hundred million dollar budget, and being able to cast two of the biggest actors alive. So Paul Thomas Anderson did something similar similar with Licorice Pizza. But that was made on a tiny budget, probably twenty-five to thirty million. Cast two unknown actors, um, so he was able to afford it, and doing the best he could with the valley locations in Los Angeles. But Tarantino, he's got very expensive people working in this film, and he's spending a lot of money making this film. And nobody can give this budget to anyone else. And it was actually hard for him to get the budget for the movie for how he saw the vision of the film to be uh, in his mind. Because it is such a massive film. And so I'm, I, th- I do believe that outside of his last film, we're never going to see a movie that is made like this ever again in the history of filmmaking. Just because it's too expensive and Tarantino's name carries so much weight and guarantees a certain amount of box office where David Heyman and a couple other people and then Sony were able to be like, okay, yeah, let's do this. It's crazy expensive. It is risky for a Tarantino movie, but let's do it and make it work. So I think he really is the only filmmaker that can carry that much weight. Yeah, I wouldn't say that he had too much trouble getting a budget because he was they, he had a five-picture bidding war to get the rights to this movie, and he got a wild contract because it's Tarantino in terms of rights. So mm-hmm. he cut ties with the Weinstein Company, obviously, and started a new distributor after having worked with Weinstein for his entire career. At this point, Leonardo DiCaprio was revealed to be among the shortlist of actors back when he was trying to get it made and get the budget all set. And then eventually all these studios were bidding for the film and then David Heyman joined. Obviously Heyman, Heyday Productions, that's the guy who got Harry Potter getting made. He's a very successful film producer. So cool to see him 
doing other projects outside of that Harry Potter. He's done plenty of movies, but to see Harry yeah, Potter yeah, yeah. and then to do a Tarantino movie, like what an awesome career this guy has had. Now, on November 11, 2017, Sony announced that they would distribute the film, beating Warner Brothers, Universal, Paramount, Anna Perner, and Lionsgate, who were all in a bidding war. Tarantino's demands included a $95 million budget, final cut privilege, meaning he gets to do whatever he wants, all up to him, extraordinary creative controls, 25% of first dollar gross, and the stipulation that the rights revert to him after somewhere around 10 to 25 years after the film's release. So very few directors can get something like that done, but still... Everyone wants to make a Tarantino movie, but you're right. Not everyone wants to make a Tarantino movie for $100 million. Not every one of his movies is a banger. He's been having lots of success the last few, like in terms of Django and Glorious Bastards. Those are three of his most successful movies. But before then, I mean, even Kill Bill and Kill Bill Part Two, they were successful, but they not, they weren't massive hits yeah. at the box office. This was a huge hit. It's $377 million on $90 million. For a Tarantino movie, rated R, not kids going to see this movie really that's a massive success and i feel like tarantino movies are highly rent uh purchased oh absolutely as to other dude. i think absolutely nolan and tarantino if you're gonna say like what filmmakers get the most in blu-ray dvd sales right now those are probably the two top filmmakers that get the rewatchability with their movies because their movies are so rewatchable and merchandise we yeah. talked about that the other day about why warner brothers is trying to get nolan back so much because yeah they want to make his movies but because his movies will last forever in terms of being a money-making machine mm -hmm. And this this is his uh it could be his most personal film too, I know that obviously Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown were made in L A as well, and this is obviously an incredible Los Angeles film. If and if you live in Los Angeles in any area of the city, and you watch this movie, you're gonna take away so much. And you because but what makes this movie different is it captures what like life is like in in L A. Even though it's set in in a different era, I really feel like he captured the lifestyle of the city in the pulse of the city, um, physically and through culture as well. But I mean, I mean, one of my favorite aspects of the film is all of the driving, like I mentioned earlier. And if you live in LA, you drive a lot. And it's a very big, huge city that is made up of a bunch of like small cities. Um, but Los Angeles is massive. And you might live in the valley, or you might live in the hills, or you might live on the west side, or you might live in actual Hollywood or, or south la or, or the east side that's all la and so cliff driving so much it it just captures what life is like in la where you no matter where you're going you got to get on a freeway you gotta drive through some boulevard oftentimes sunset boulevard if you're going west and or east and then you gotta drive up into the valley you gotta take these exits and and it's also long drives and he brilliantly captures this driving while um doing these kind of jump cuts with music where uh, one of my favorite sequences is just Cliff driving after he dropped Rick Hoff at home in the opening act, and then he's driving up north into the valley to go to his place, and he's just driving for five minutes in different areas of Los Angeles, and uh, we just we hear like a song for ten seconds, then it cuts to another him driving in a different area for like ten fifteen seconds of another song playing, and we just keep these getting these jump cuts of him travel traversing Los Angeles. And we're just browsing the radio with him. We're just listening to what the DJ's playing. And yeah, things like that really capture the, the lifestyle and what living in the city is really like. And you, you recognize a lot of the exits. You recognize a lot of the streets, even though they are period period set. Um, but when I watch this movie, I'm like... And, and also, um, Sharon Tate and Polanski um, 
and Cliff driving through the Hollywood Hills because driving through Hollywood Hills is like that, and it's just so windy. And But you spend so much time driving as an L.A. resident, and that's something you don't see often in movies set in L.A. And Tarantino is one of the best ever when it comes to selecting music for his films. Scorsese and Tarantino are the GOATs. PTA is great. Even James Gunn is really good at selecting music for his movies. Some of the best soundtracks the last few years, I think, are the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Those are great. Better name Edgar Wright before we get Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright, too, of course. Careful, Sorry, man. You can't name everyone that uses music in their <laughs> films, okay? Um, who did you miss? <laughs> but I think this, this might be his best soundtrack that he's curated because of how long it is, how much music's in there, and how important it is to kind of the soul and the heartbeat of this film because we're spending so much time in the car and this if, if one of tarantino's biggest motifs throughout his film is pop culture that's one of his trademarks and pop culture might be the most integral to this movie than any of his films in terms of the culture of the time of 1969 late 60s going to the early 70s of hollywood and la and pop culture the music the commercials the posters the cars everything i mean the, there's so many there's 17 commercials on the radio in this movie that he sl- he found a ton three hours worth of commercials 17 made it in that were real commercials like Anthony said earlier including khj or boss radio which is a real radio station we have that great ad with batman and robin to win a colored tv heaven sent radio ads the illustrated man the film from warner brothers cc and company that trailer for the joe Joe, Joe Namath uh, movie, which is a real movie. <laughs> see, see me, Ryder. Like, he's like fighting people at the movie theater in that trailer. We saw the trailer yeah. of the movie at the theater. So when Margot Robbie's character, Sharon Tate, goes to see a movie, that's a real movie. And it's really terrific to see stuff like that. And the thing with the radio commercials is it's such a part of everyone's life before smartphones, really, My before God. Bluetooth. You know, you couldn't skip them. You could only tune away. But, I mean, by the time you tune away – you're listening to commercials. You don't want to miss station. a good song. Yeah, you don't want. You want to go back and make sure you hear a banger. So <laughs> you hear the same ads over and over again until they're basically seared and imprinted on your brain for the rest of time. So Tarantino says he tracked these down from 1968, 1969, and he has a three-hour best of mixtape. But they're all real, and many of them are on the actual official soundtrack of the of the movie. There was one. I mean, there's a few I can I can remember really well from New England and Massachusetts. So. Bernie and Phil's quality, comfort, and price. That's nice. But <laughs> oh yeah, man, everyone has yeah, them. Every so area many. has them for jewelry companies, movie theaters, oh, yeah. whatever it is. But it adds to this world and to this character, these characters, in the setting, the aesthetic, the feel of 1969 Los Angeles. It's essential to transport you there, and that's why there's so many aspects to this film, including the music and commercials and pop culture, that really make this feel like a magical fairy tale set in Los Angeles in 1969. And that's why he actually hired production designer Barbara Ling, who is also a L.A. native. And she grew up at the same time, although she was older. So during the time where this film is set, Tarantino was about eight or nine years old. And Barbara Ling, she was about 16, 17. So she was actually like living the nightlife of this era. So she knew that really well. I think that's that played a big part in her getting the role. And it was her first Tarantino film. He actually worked with a couple of major production heads for the first time in this film, production design and costume design, both new um, first-time Tarantino collaborators. So Barbara Ling did the production design. She most notably did a couple of Batman movies that Schumacher made, Batman and Robin, Batman Forever, and Falling Down, and then a bunch of other like kind of mid-tier movies. But she got the job with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because of her intense memory of the era. And she and Tarantino had a lot of conversations about 
recounting what things looked like, what kind of restaurants were on certain blocks, what that block felt like. And she said um, she put her own memories of 1969 into the film alongside the director's. And what's good is that she's older than Quentin. And so he'd be like, remember this thing? And then she would go, no, that wasn't on that street. That was over in Westwood. And he'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she had a much better memory for it because she was a teenager in her, in her late teens and he was still a kid. And being a teenager, she said, in 1969 was very exciting because your parents would be horrible, horrified to find out that what you were really doing every weekend was going out to clubs, hitchhiking, going out to bars and having fun and partying. So she lived the lifestyle that a lot of, that, of what we see in this movie. And she said that uh, nobody cared about fake IDs. And, <laughs> and even all the teenagers had fake IDs and could get into the bars and restaurants. And so Barbara Ling being uh, nominated for this film, did you say she won? She won, yeah. Yeah, well-deserved because one of the most incredible things I've seen on film is to see Sunset Boulevard transformed into its former self for the year 1969 and period accurate and one of my favorite things is remember that sequence with the neon that little montage of all the neon lights oh yeah let's see all the signs getting lit up and these are all accurate signs to the era there's some some of these signs are still here i think el coyote's um, still there um casa vega well, it, it's not in that montage but yeah. we see that but yeah. that has a red neon sign and i love that it's kind of just like the city turning itself, turning on, and and night night coming into being, and it's just like it's a different part of the city, different feeling, and that beautiful montage of all the signs being turned on with their incredible sound design, they all sound different. Um, I I just really love that sequence, and seeing that in theaters really it just made me smile. Um, it I just it just felt like nostalgic, even though I'm not, even though we're talking about a movie before we were born. I can still feel the nostalgia and the time, uh, the time machine feeling that this movie gives. Yeah, you've seen Taxi Driver a bunch of times. You love those neon signs. <laughs> but let's let's stay on the topic of how they transformed L.A. and Hollywood into 1969, as well as some cool production facts. So Tarantino's directive was to turn Los Angeles of 2018 when they shot it into Los Angeles of 1969 without computer-generated imagery, CGI. For this, he tapped into previous collaborators for production. Editor Fred Raskin, cinematographer Robert Richardson, sound editor Willie Stafeman, and makeup artist Hava Thorstofter. He also brought first-time collaborators like you brought up, Barbara Link, for production design based on her work recreating historical settings in The Doors, and costume designer Arian Phillips. Despite Tarantino's intent, though, the production wound up using more than 75 digital visual effects shots by Luma Pictures and Lola Visual Effects mainly to cover up modern billboards and erasing non-1960s buildings from driving shots. So they had to do a little a little buffing of just the a little, stuff they shot. Just a little, little buffing a little here and there. Now, Spawn Ranch... Gotta get rid of all those lawyer billboards. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> Call Jacob <laughs> everywhere. Sweet James. <laughs> That's are real. You, yeah, are you are in real. an accident? Call Sweet James, the real guy. Now, not advertisement. Yeah, anyways. Spawn Ranch, which is real. It existed in even many of the characters from Spawn Ranch existed, was recreated in detail over about a three-month period. A wildfire completely destroyed the ranch in 1970, so the scenes for the movie were filmed at nearby Coringaville Movie Ranch in Simi Valley. L.A. and Los Angeles in this area is full of these movie ranches, just massive pieces of land in the desert that you can rent out if you want to film something. It's really cool. 
and which was also a, mo- a movie ranch at one time. Tarantino made sure to use a lot of dogs in the scenes. He said in real life, many dogs lived on the ranch and made it feel alive. He even made sure there were dogs moving around in every shot. He was inspired to use dogs in this manner from the way Francis Ford Coppola used helicopters in Apocalypse Now during the Robert Duvall scenes to improve the use of practical Much effects. Much cheaper, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dog versus helicopter. Now, to improve the use of practical effects, this is a fun one. Leonardo DiCaprio, who plays Rick Dalton, was allowed to light stunt coordinators on fire while shooting scenes with a flamethrower. Obviously, that iconic flashback of when Marvin Schwarz is telling Rick about how he watched the 14 Fists of McCluskey. I love what a shooting. picture. What a picture. How many Nazis you kill in that? <laughs> and Rick comes up from behind the curtain and lights like 15 people on fire. He Everybody really... ordered fried sauerkraut. <laughs> <laughs> Leo really lit a bunch of people on fire in that shot, which is really incredible. Just adds so much to the film, as well as when he torches the girl in the pool at the end of the film. It wasn't her, it was someone else. <laughs> So that's just great practical design right now. The exterior of the Van Nuys Drive-In Theater scene was filmed actually at Paramount Drive-In Theaters. Since the Van Nuys Drive-In Theater no longer exists, it was destroyed in 1998 because it went bankrupt, basically. So what they did was they used a combination of recreating the exterior front sign, which obviously Cliff Booth drives up to and past before he goes to his home. You see they recreated that completely accurate, same size. It's beautiful, Van Nuys Theater, Van Nuys Drive-In. And then they switch to basically a miniature set with all the cars as well as the screen. This and they is when the camera hovers over. Yeah, the camera hovers over. It's over, and now it's a miniature. Even have a, a normal size, like a bedroom projector, almost to Amazing. send it off. But that was actually <laughs> so a real massive practical wall, basically built leading into a miniature shot to capture and recreate this drive-in theater that no longer exists anymore. For some of the driving scenes, the Hollywood Freeway Freeway, and Marina Freeway in Los Angeles were shut down for hours in order to fill them with vintage cars. This is one of the most impressive parts about the production, I think, is even I think they did this near Hollywood Boulevard, it looks like. Massive shots, wide shots and long shots of streets and boulevards in L.A. during broad daylight with vintage cars going everywhere. That takes a lot of money and, and time to shut down because L.A. is a big place. A lot of people live here, lots of cars, but to shut it down just to fill it up with some vintage cars takes a lot of work. But, man, they expertly pulled this off for the production. I remember they there was a, there's a big lot in downtown, and during the production of this film, they had they were using the big lot for storing a lot of things like vehicles and stuff for, for shooting. And um, that's like because there's not much room, there's not much space in LA for for this kind of stuff to like store stuff. So not they, in the they city use, areas. Yeah, they use a lot. Of, there's some big open lots in downtown that they used for. And I remember walking by this this lot a couple of times, being in downtown. And the person I was with told me it was they were using it for the Tarantino production. And I was like, man, that's so cool. But like you said, daytime in LA, it's crowded. During the nighttime, you're shooting at four in the morning. Nobody's around, so that's much easier. But the daytime stuff, you're right. It's really impressive. And one more. Uh, mm-hmm. Bruce Lee training Jay Sebring in the movie. That sequence is act- was actually filmed at Jay Sebring's actual house. Fun fact. Wow. However, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski's house was destroyed decades ago, but now there is a massive, even bigger mansion that's been built on that space instead, so they couldn't film there. I love when Jay, at the end, through the fence, and Sharon invites him up, and he just does like a thumbs up. He's just like, you're in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And also, speaking of restaurants, I would love to just tap into Los Angeles restaurants and real locations. Before that, I just want to mention— And before that, though. So just <laughs> for food, relating to food and, and drink— 
um, there's a beer that Rick drinks and that Cliff drinks in the movie. He pulls out of the fridge. Oh, can, can I wait to get to that? Yeah. Oh a, yeah, if you I have a, a plan. So it's part of it's Quentin Tarantino's yeah. uh, products in his universe. He's mm-hmm. got several products, but well, I'll do that after the restaurants. Okay. Because I made a list of Tarantino has his own world full of things that you can buy. Yeah. But it, we saw it before the movie. Yes, the actual. So uh, yeah. the beer, this beer, James will say. Yeah. yeah, the beer that James is going to talk about. He. He opens his movies. The new Bev opens the movies with three trailers and some kind of bit. Sometimes it's a Looney Tunes, Looney Tunes skit. Sometimes it's like a little tiny comedy short. But this time, it was an actual advertisement for the fake beer in this movie that Tarantino made. Voiced by Walton Goggins. Yeah, Walton Goggins. It's amazing. It was so funny. You might as well stay on that. So Anthony's talking about the old Chattanooga beer. The which old Chattanooga, yeah. first appeared in Death Proof, actually. Now it's one of the new, more reoccurring products in Tarantino's universe of products that you can buy. Red Apple cigarettes, most popular in his universe, are in pretty much every single movie. In this film, it appears on a bus billboard, as well as Rick Dalton stars in a TV ad for the brand, which is so funny. At the end of the movie, there's a a post-credit sequence of this ad, and also... It gets brought up in the book. I've been reading the the novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and, and they actually talk about how he smokes it in real life because he got used to it, even though they taste terrible. Got a double chin. Who approved this? <laughs> Looks like shit. So old Chattanooga, Red Apple Cigarettes, a newcomer to Tarantino's universe of products, Wolf's Tooth Dog Food. Flavors include raccoon, bird, and rat. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just a new gag. I hope he puts it in his next movie because it's one of my favorite products I've ever seen in any of his movies. The great label. is hilarious, yeah. It's, it's like just, a werewolf. But he, the attention to detail of how, just little things in life, Tarantino just dials to 11 to make it relatable and funny with just slobbing and it, dropping it down to the ball with the sound design, yeah. the, pop, the plop, and Brandy's licking her chops looking at it. Food and drink have always been so important to Tarantino movies, and every one of his movies. And you get to see that. It really helps inform the character of each person. You know, Cliff... He likes to drink Bloody Mary, and he's chewing on that celery stalk in the, in, the, in, the, in the restaurant, and then he's drinking a Bloody Mary on the on the plane. And then Rick, he does the uh, what do you call that? The little seltzer pods that you put in the water. What do you call that? Alka seltzer. Alka seltzer. But what he does is he takes it, he puts it in his glass of water, and then he puts something on top of it, and then he shakes it like that. He does it a couple of times in this film, and it's just the behavior of it is just really fantastic, and obviously. Rick likes to drink margaritas, most most famously frozen margaritas. Like and whiskey right sours. Whiskey Dude, sours. You had to have eight goddamn whiskey <laughs> sours. <laughs> Couldn't stop at three or four. You had to have eight. <laughs> and then there's a new Tarantino <laughs> brand called Hot Wax Records, which also appears in this film as well as many others. But I just love this attention to Tarantino's world, kind of just connecting all of his films together. No other filmmaker does that. It's so fun. I mean, we eat all the time. We drink all the time, especially myself. <laughs> so... To see it in a movie, it makes you relate to them. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's really important for informing um, the audience to the characters. And uh, in terms of the costume design, Ariane Phillips, who you said earlier is, is a first-time collaborator with Tarantino on this film, but she is a big-time costume designer. She's been doing Tom Ford's movies, so you know she's legit. <laughs> she did Nocturnal Animals and A Single Man. And then she's been do- she uh, started out doing Madonna's music videos, and then she styled to the two Madonna directed films. Um, so she if she's got like two a couple of the most stylish people ever and they're hiring her for their for their stuff, you know she's got the the goods, you know what I mean? I mean she created a, a Halloween costume with Rick Dalton. That's yeah, a Halloween costume now. Exactly. But she's also done Three Ten Yuma. So oh, she's done great. she's done the Western. She's done the kind of thing that Tarantino really loves. So 
she also did the Kingsman movies, the first two, not the uh, the period piece one. So when Phillips actually first heard about Tarantino's latest film, she knew that he, it was told that he was looking at only two costume designers who he didn't want to speak to any, any more than two. He didn't know which two they were going to be, but he's very selective and he doesn't like to interview a bunch of people. And so the producer of the film said, you know, Quentin's looking to do a movie set in the same time period as the movie she was currently working on. She was in pre-production on another period piece film in L.A. This, this one in the 70s. So she was already stockpiling 60s and 70s vintage clothes. She was already living in that world preparing for this movie. Now that movie she was working on ended up falling apart, which opened up her schedule to be able to try and go after the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood job. And through her agent and connections, she was able to get a meeting with Tarantino. So because that other movie fell apart, she got this role. Now, when she went to his place to read the script, she couldn't bring her cell phone into the room. And her and Tarantino's assistant uh, gave her a script that had already been read by a bunch of other people. He only had one script, and everybody read it from crew departments to lead actors. They all just read the same script. And um, I saw this interview with Brad Pitt saying that when he read it, there was like coffee stains on it. Kept it in a safe too. Yeah, and he keeps it in a safe, but also the assistant keeps the last 30 pages in a safe as well. So uh, Phillips read the first like 200 pages. And then when she was up, when she was caught up to the third act, then the assistant went into a safe and pulled out the final 30 pages. So even that was separate from the actual rest of the script. And so, she was told that the script would probably be cut down from what it was, but she said, like many of us know, Tarantino writes in a very dense um, kind of writing for a screenplay. It's more like a novel than it is a screenplay. And so when she was finished, well, actually what was really cool is she sat down in his office to read the script, and she said his art, his, his home was directed beautifully, art directed beautifully, like vintage And then when she sat in his chair in his office, there was a window in front of her, and outside the window was a beautiful view of the Hollywood sign. Which is just, it just sounds perfect. Like to read that script in Tarantino's house with the Hollywood sign right outside is just fantastic. And so she finished the script. And then after that, she was given a week to prepare for a pitch. So she gathered a bunch of materials, made a huge list of ideas, basically made a whole book presentation for Tarantino of what she had in mind based upon what she could remember because she was not allowed to even bring a pen into the office. So she said once she finished the script, she ran into her car grabbed a pen and wrote down everything she could remember specifically about characters and wardrobe that Tarantino mentioned because Tarantino told her that if it's in the script, it's meaningful, and that means I want it on screen. I'm not just, like, messing around. Like, if I say a character's wearing this, that's what I want them to wear. And so she had this really intense meeting with Tarantino, basically as a pitch of her. After she had collected a ton of items, she went to the Rose Bowl flea market. She went all over eBay all over Etsy. She gathered a bunch of ideas for certain outfits. She even got a Hawaiian shirt that she had in mind for Cliff. And then... I hope she wasn't banking on Etsy shipping. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Etsy shipping is slow as Ooh, fuck, I man. I mean, sometimes it's coming from, like, Ireland. No, even America. if it's, like, in America, it's still fucking two it's weeks. like eight months. Like, oh, I forgot so I ordered slow. this. <laughs> it's so slow. Um, and so she had her big pitch with Tarantino, and she said it was the most intense meeting of her life. Not because he's intense, but, like, it's a big thing. for, for Like a Tarantino movie. Yeah, she said she's... She said, her dream has always been to work on a Tarantino movie, and so it was finally she was in the room to make that happen. I think that's everyone in Hollywood, honestly. <laughs> yeah, for real. And then the the pitch went really well, and she got hired for the job, and then they were the ball was rolling after that. And I think she did a phenomenal job because even though she didn't win the Oscar, 
I mean, she made a Halloween costume out of this. Like you said, there were a lot of people dressing up like Cliff for Halloween that year. The Hawaiian shirt, the champion white tee, and then the blue jeans and the moccasins. I mean, the attention to detail for the character was just fantastic. And all the costume was just fantastic. All the costuming was great because I'm sure it was a dream job for her because she got to play around genres. So she's not just making a 69, 70s period piece. She's making a few westerns as well. So Bounty she, Law, J.K. Hill, exactly, FBI. Exactly, FBI. So she got to probably have an absolute blast trying to come up with ideas for all of these different genres she was able to work in. Yeah, one of the most underrated aspects of the film for sure. Now, since you were talking about the script, I'm going to hold off on the locations thing. Let's stay on the script for a little bit because yeah. I want to talk about where Tarantino got the idea to make this film. So basically, Tarantino discovered the centerpiece for the work about 10 years previously to 2018 while filming Death Proof with Kurt Russell, who had been working with the same stunt double named John Casino for several years. John Casino is That's his name? Kurt Russell's stunt double's name. Best buds, <laughs> Great too. Great name. Even though there was a small bit for only a small bit for Casino to do in the film, Tarantino was asked to use him and agreed. The relationship fascinated Tarantino and inspired him to make a film about Hollywood, starring an actor, a fading actor, not Kurt Russell's a fading actor, but an actor mm -hmm. in his stunt double. Tarantino stated, while Casino may have been a perfect double for Kurt Russell years earlier, when he met them, this maybe was the last or second to last thing they'd be doing together. So real life inspiration <laughs> there. So the screenplay is a great fit for me. <laughs> <laughs> you can you gotta agree, he's a great fit for me. Put him in put him in a suit. Just you can do anything you want to. Throw him hit, off a building. Hit him with a goddamn Lincoln. <laughs> Light him on fire. <laughs> he's, just, he's just happy for the opportunity. <laughs> this, he killed his fucking wife. <laughs> I don't think the vibe he brings on set, man. <laughs> <laughs> the screenplay for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was developed slowly over several years by Tarantino while he knew he wanted it to be titled Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, evoking the idea of a fairy tale, he publicly referred to the project as Magnum Opus. The life of the work for the first five years was actually a novel, which Tarantino considered to be an exploratory approach to the story, not yet having decided if it would be a screenplay. And you can actually get the novelization of Tarantino's movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I highly re recommend checking it out. I just got it. I'm a couple chapters in, and it's literally like being in Rick and Cliff Dalton's Cliff's head, basically. It's so fun. Amazing. So, so if, is Cliff the lead of the novel? They're they're both. It's like they're both. Uh -huh. I mean, I mean, uh, Rick's the lead of the uh -huh. story, but gotcha. yeah, it's Cliff as well. Mm -hmm. um, Tarantino tried other writing approaches. The early scene between Rick Dalton and Marvin Schwartz was originally Whoa. written as a one act play as well. Now, Very Wes Anderson of him. I know. Tarantino first created stuntman Cliff Booth, giving him a massive backstory. Next, he created actor Rick Dalton, for whom Booth would stunt double. Tarantino decided to have them be Sharon Tate's next-door neighbors in 1969. The first plot point he developed was the ending, moving backwards from there, this being the first time Tarantino had worked this way. He thought of doing an Elmore Leonard-type story, but realized he was confident enough in his characters to let them drive the film and let it be a day in the life of Booth, Dalton, and Tate. He would so use... I think what he meant by that is like a, a crime uh, thriller in a way. Yeah. With Elmore Leonard always being crime novels. He would use sequences from Dalton's films for the action inspired by Richard Rush's 1980 film The Stuntman, which used the scenes from the World War I movie they were making within the film as the action. Further to get his mind into Dalton, Tarantino wrote five episodes of the fictional television show Bounty Law, in which Dalton had starred having 
become fascinated with the amount of story crammed into half-hour episodes of 1950s Western shows. Tarantino kept the only copy of the third act of the script in a safe to prevent it from being prematurely released. DiCaprio, Robbie, and Pitt were the only other people who read the entire script until he started going into production, basically. In an interview with Adam Sandler, where him and Pitt did the interviews, uh, actors oh, yeah, actually interview, interview each other. Yeah. Pitt revealed that the only other copy of the script was burned by Tarantino. Tarantino got paranoid after the leak of his last script. Of Hateful Eight. Yeah. Because remember when he did the... They, 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 they got the leaked, state, and then yeah. they ended up doing the just state, basically yeah. a reading of it, a yeah. public reading of it. And then he said... He was not going to make the movie. I think he even said he might never write a screenplay again he, after yeah, that Yeah, he was fucking pissed. Yeah. But I don't blame him, because that's a really big deal. And also... In the book, if you get it, Tarantino thanks Hollywood legends and their stories of old Hollywood and this time for how inspiring they were for not only him and his career, but also the story and crafting this world. Specifically, he thanked Bruce Dern, David Carradine, Burton Reynolds, Robert Blake, Michael Parks, Robert Forster, and especially Kurt Russell. And uh, Burt Reynolds is actually going to be in the movie, but he passed away before production. Oh, which role was he going to play again? He was going to play uh, the old man at Spawn Ranch. Oh, Spawn Ranch, right. George. Right. Um, I always, I mean. We love George. <laughs> I always felt like he wanted to make a movie titled Once Upon a Time in something eventually. Because obviously being a huge fan of so many movies from the past that use that bill. And Robert Rodriguez, Once Upon a Time in Mexico. You know, Sergio Leone, Once Upon a, Once Upon a Time in in America, once upon a time in the West, once upon a time in Dubai, so everywhere. That's a movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it is. Yeah. And also putting it um, in the opening of Inglorious Bastards, once upon a time in Nazi occupied France. So I always felt like, uh, as a, a Tarantino fan, I was like, he's gonna use that in a title eventually. Like he he won't be able to resist it. You know what I mean? And it, it seemed like with this, he found the perfect reason to use once upon a time in a title. Because Robert Rodriguez, his best bud, managed to do it very early on in his career um, with his second film. And so I think Tarantino, it, it was kind of like destined to happen eventually using that title. But then figuring out, oh, Hollywood and using something he knows so well, the Hollywood in that era. And so speaking of the script, since it was, so, it was actually so long, the film, they shot everything that was in the script. And the original cut of the film was four and a half hours long. So editor Fred Raskin, he's a, he actually took over, um, and he's he's been editing Tarantino's films since Django, and so he took over for Sally, and then so he he edited Django, he edited Hateful Eight, and he edited this, and so he actually didn't have that big of a career. He had done some stuff, but nothing really that wild. He has become James Gunn's editor as well. He edited he's been editing James Gunn's films since. Guardians, but this came, but uh, he made Django before Guardians. So I'm guessing the reason why Tarantino chose Fred is either he was um, working with another editor he really respected or he was familiar with him, but also because Tarantino likes to edit on, not edit on film, but um, use film, and he likes to look at his dailies on film, and he likes to uh, work on film as much as he can, even in post production. I'm guessing Fred Raskin is very familiar with it and has a great um, working relationship with film, which is why Tarantino might really enjoy working with him because I was expecting for this guy to take over Tarantino's editing duties to be like a fucking heavy hitter of like an insane filmography, but he actually had a pretty modest filmography before Tarantino like 
hired him out of nowhere for Django. So it must be something along the lines of him being so familiar with film and film stocks and editing on film. Or maybe he he saw some of his work and he's like, I like yeah. that style. Yeah, like it could whatever. Be. He's he got, did. He's got um, something he did. That I like. the, he did two of the Fast and Furious movies before Django. I mean, it's a really yeah. well edited movie. It's fantastic. It's, it's so yeah. well done. And yeah. so, so the first cut was four and a half hours long, but they had to cut out two hours. And he had Raskin had some really interesting things to say about the editing. So he said, not only did I get to cut the dialogue sequence between two of the best actors of their generations talking about Al Pacino and Leonardo DiCaprio. But he got to do a war movie. He got to do a Western. He got to play with a bunch of different genres. But what's interesting is that that original scene with Al Pacino and DiCaprio, it's about probably, what, 10 minutes of the film or so? That was originally 28 minutes long. Wow. That's how much conversation they had and how much dialogue there was. Yeah, it's actually the opening of the book. I just read that chapter. Oh, yeah? It's like a pretty long conversation. So it started out as 28 minutes, and they cut it down to about 10 minutes. But the way that they did that was because they didn't want to make it feel like they're just like, cutting and it would feel like maybe it was like rushed so what do they do he cuts in flashbacks of dalton's previous works a couple of the films and tv shows and so that was a way for them to kind of fill in the gaps of where they had to cut out big chunks of dialogue for that sequence and it works really well because there's such a great pacing to this film with the editing where obviously it's a huge conversation but being able to see the footage from the other films and being able to open open with bounty law is just so much fun and so the pacing of the editing is really fantastic, but also Cliff's Drive Home, which I mentioned earlier, just cutting based on every song, basically doing jump cuts. But he he was really interested in the tantrum. So Tarantino, I mean, uh, Rick Dalton's tantrum in his trailer after he was flubbing the lines on, on the Western show. And it's the only kind of time that Tarantino has done this, which is a jump cut. And a jump cut means you're just cutting to the same shot at a different point in time. So in this case... It's just a static wide shot that Richardson set up, and it's wide in the trailer. It, the camera doesn't move at all, and it's just uh, Rick Dalton freaking out, but then it cuts to, like, different uh, parts of his tantrum, and then basically Tarantino jumps out, jumps in space. You know what I mean? That's what a jump cut is. You're cutting in the same frame, frame same shot, but a different sh um, version of that shot. So they used five takes from that DiCaprio's performance, and they laced in all the funniest bits, but that's the, the only time that Tarantino's ever done a jump cut in any of his movies, but it works so well, and it really is one of the funniest parts of the movie. And it's completely improvised, basically, which is something also that's rare that doesn't really happen yeah. in Tarantino movies, is you read the dialogue that's written, you don't really improvise, except occasionally, and you know, since Leo's Leo, and this scene was a great idea to kind of do like a Travis Bickle alone in their apartment, what's Rick Dalton going to do in his trailer after <laughs> flubbing all of his lines on Lancer? It's so funny. And the thing with this film, there's so much shot, you know, four hours, 30 minutes of the, the original cut, cutting it down to two hours and 40 minutes. So much dialogue, even plenty of stuff from the theatrical trailers that didn't make it in the film as well. Like I think Cliff Booth and Charles Manson, they actually had sort of an inter interaction. There was when, another when, scene with Charlie. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of scenes with Charlie. Well, not a lot, but there's a good amount of dialogue. A, a supposedly a really terrific scene that got completely cut of Charles Manson. The actor said it was the best scene he's ever filmed in one of his favorite wow. Tarantino scenes he's ever experienced. I want to watch that. Yeah, so who knows if it'll ever get released. Lots Do you know more. what it was uh, involved no, in? I, it? It's completely no. hush up. Like I think mm -hmm. he's on NDA. He can't really talk about it. But he just says it is the best thing he's ever read in terms of a scene before, especially mm -hmm. that he's been a part of. Um, also, Schwartz salutes the projectionist before Schwartz. entering the projection room. Sharon Tate swinging her pool. Lots of stuff from the trailers in making it, as well as 
the original film that was screened at Cannes was two minutes shorter than the version released in theaters, and Tarantino reportedly added more scenes of Sharon Tate, including extending the scene where she picks up the hitchhiker. There's also a Tim Roth deleted scene. No way. Multiple deleted scenes of Tim Roth. So Tim Roth, obviously a regular in Tarantino's filmography. Now, he played Jay Sebring's British butler. There's a couple of behind-the-scenes photos you can find of him in a butler outfit serving Jay in Sebring. In the house? Like, yeah, serving him what? like breakfast in bed and stuff oh like God. that. So he would have been uh, – Emil Hirsch plays Jay Sebring in the film. There's, so Tim Roth has a bunch of deleted scenes as well as Jack Nicholson reportedly filmed something for this movie. No one knows what it is. It got leaked that an actor who was in a scene with him said that Jack Nicholson filmed something. The rumor is that in the Lancer TV series, uh, when Timothy Oliphant's character comes in, he's like, they're talking about Old Man Lancer, and he, oh, we'll find out, he'll come here. The rumor is that he played Old Man Lancer, who, or no, not, oh my god. Yeah, Tanner, no, yeah, Old Man Lancer, in one of the, one of the Cowboy Westerns, I couldn't remember, because, yeah, yeah, no, not, so the one from Bounty Law, I think, where with Michael Masden, uh-huh. Michael Masden's like, "Oh well, I'll be sure to I'll let you sure. know when he gets here." <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think that older gentleman, uh-huh. old man Lancer, was gonna was the, the by father Jack of the guy he yeah, kills. Yeah, I think that was Jack Nicholson. Oh my god, because you're right. Yeah, they never showed who the father. But I'll be sure to introduce you when he gets here. Yeah. <laughs> there was also two deleted Trudy scenes. One of the scenes with Trudy and Rick was actually before the day of filming. They had a phone call the night before when he was making margaritas prepping, and they were practicing their lines, and they filmed that. So with the little girl who played Trudy practicing their lines on the phone with Rick Dalton, which would have been fun to see, but obviously you don't need it. But then I believe that Heyday, I mean Heyman, David Heyman said that she was so terrific in that scene that if that got kept in, he said that she probably would have gotten an Oscar nomination. Wow, she that girl's really talented. She she's been rising big time. Um, she was just in Sp- Spielberg's Fablements. She played uh, one of the sisters. But there was another scene. Um, also, that... her name's not Trudy, so Dakota Fanning plays Trudy. Oh, I'm sorry. What's what's the little girl's name? Uh, hold on one second. Anthony's messing Pumpkin up. Pumpkin Puss. What's her name? <laughs> I don't like names. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> hold on. Pull up the cast list right now. It was not Trudy. Oh, it is Trudy. Yeah, it so is Trudy. Dakota Fanning's character is Squeaky. I'm sorry. Squeaky? Squeaky. Squeaky. Yeah, it's Trudy. Yeah, my bad. Julia Butters is the actress. Yes. I don't know. I couldn't find out what the scene entailed, but from a couple of interviews that I did read, apparently the scene basically did the same thing as Trudy's reaction to Rick's great performance, where it was like solidifying his confidence and making him feel good about how good he did. So they cut this scene because Tarantino said in the edit that you know, we already established this theme with her reaction to saying it was the best acting I've ever seen. So it's kind of getting redundant having this other scene where she's talking about how great his acting is again. So they cut that scene. I love that because Rick Dalton's such a fragile guy <laughs> that praise from an eight-year-old is like the most meaningful thing in the world to him. <laughs> Rick fucking Dalton. Fucking Rick Dalton. <laughs> I remember in the trailer, and it was my favorite moment of the trailer because I got that. You could see the insecurity of him in the trailer, obviously. And that that I remember the trailers. It would end with that. That was like the final bit you saw. Frick fucking doll. And he's got <laughs> tears in his eyes. You're like, oh my god, this is crazy. You've never seen Leo play someone so insecure before. And I lo- the insecurity of Rick Dalton. It's so goddamn funny at times. And it really is. My god, it's amazing. How about we talk about the casting 
So oh, yeah. oh, in yeah. January 2018, before production, DiCaprio signed on. Oh, I'm first. sorry. Before casting, do you want to do one more production department? Oh, actually, yeah. Do production, then I want to bring up the real locations I was going to do earlier. Okay, so the last major department, saving it for last, is because it's fucking Robert Richardson, one of the greatest DPs of all time. I think Richardson kind of flies under the radar in terms of popular conversation as a cinematographer, but he really is an all-timer. He's been um, Scorsese's cinematographer since the 90s. Although well, he hasn't yeah. done his last couple. Rodrigo Prieto. Yeah. But um and he's been Tarantino's cinematographer since Kill Bill. But he's been making Oliver Stone's movies since the eighties. And so just a, a quick just some of his movies, The Aviator, Kill Bill One and Two, Hugo, which he won an Oscar for, Kings of New York, Shutter Island, Glorious Bastards, World War Z, Casino, JFK Wall Street Platoon, so like some of the best films ever. So what last. you're saying is he's pretty good at his job. Yeah. And he actually most recently did Air for Ben Affleck. He is an absolute genius cinematographer in terms of his lighting, but also his use of film. He does digital sometimes as well, but he is really such a pro with using film. And very few cinematographers are as efficient and artistic as he is. And he is famous for his top light. And you see it in a lot of Tarantino films. So there's the two kinds of top lights. There's the top light that is just, just pouring onto the table from above. And you've seen that in so many Tarantino movies where the, the table's kind of glowing and it's bouncing off onto the actor's faces, and it's really beautiful. And then he likes to do a back top light on the actor's shoulders, kind of framing them. This is just very classical kind of cinematography and lighting from the early days of filmmaking from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and it kind of isn't really done. Actually, not even really the 60s that much. It kind of isn't really done that much anymore at all. Not in this way. He does it like it was done back then, but you still see you know, backfill here and there for sure, but it's much more modernized. A uh, lot. My problem, I kind of have like this iffy feeling with contemporary cinematography with kind of just like, it's all, not all of it, but like a lot of it's starting to look exactly the same. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Oh yeah. When I see I see these movies, I'm like, it looks, it's just all starting to look the same. The digital camera work, the the same kind of LED lights and soft lights and, and all the light coming from windows, which makes no friggin' sense. If you're in a doctor's office, why is there no lights on? It's only light from the windows. Obviously, it looks cool, but like, it's getting all to look like kind of just the same. Half of them now have green and red light out of yeah, nowhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just like it's just it's getting to be a little too much, in my opinion. And it's kind of, I kind of miss. I, I like cinematography that evokes real life. And real life. Real life. <laughs> Did I say real life? You said real life. Real, I made it one word. Real life. Real life. Realize real life. Real life. Realize these eyes. Realize, realize, realize. <laughs> but Richardson is an amazing DP because he can actually adapt to all of his directors however they like. Um, Hugo is a beautiful film, but the stuff he's done with Oliver Stone is just fucking outstanding. Um, but Robert Richardson's aim was to evoke the past and the present. Quentin and, and I he said, would have to would look at the here and now, but we also pushed a little bit back in time. We didn't speak about it, but in my mind, I thought, let's make something past, present, and future. I believe that we need to shape images towards a story. Tarantino wants to help tell a story. He shapes his words, his paragraphs, his pages, and he wants to look that is shaped in a similar way. A look that will not just say, this was made in 2019, and we decided that we wouldn't just light it like that. And uh, this is very different from other features, not only because... Quentin and Bob shot on film, but because they also looked at their dailies on film. And this is actually, this never really happens anymore. I think probably maybe Nolan and PTA probably do this still, but very, 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 very few directors and filmmakers will, productions will actually 
look at dailies on film. Explain dailies for people who don't know the term. So, so dailies are the footage that you shot the day previous, or if it's like a Monday, it's what you shot on Friday. And it's basically you're look, looking through the footage, making sure you got everything you needed, making sure nothing got fucked up, making sure that nothing's drastically out of focus, all sorts of things, looking for big glaring errors. Um, and so what they did with this is Tarantino, usually 99% of the time they digitally scan the prints and then you're looking at dailies digitally. But he likes it to look at the dailies on film, which nobody does. Uh, but he, they were doing it like that. That's Tarantino's workflow because it's very old school. Um, and But he does like to edit. They obviously edit di- digitally with Raskin and they edit on Avid. But they, they do a 4K scan of the film prints so that they're using pretty high resolution footage for the editing. Um, so Bob shot with Kodak Vision 5219 500T proof and then 5213 200T. Uh, the 500T is a much more sensitive stock, so it's going to be a little more grainier. That's what they shot the night sequences with. And uh, they, they shot with double X black and white for the simulated television footage shown in the 1331 kind of almost square aspect ratio. That's just old film stock. And they did their dailies and prints on Vision 2383. These are all different kinds of film stocks and print stocks. Kodak came out with the stock that they used for the film 20 years ago. The film print is very colorful, and the primary colors are really separated and very pronounced. And that's something that Tarantino really likes. It's almost uh, outstanding, and you get the true reds, the true blues, and the true greens. And Tarantino said to Richardson, when I see those colors, that's when I know it's film. Nice. Oh, yeah. Love to hear that. Now, there are a lot of real locations in this film to make it feel like it's actually Los Angeles 1969. Several of them are actually still there, and they didn't even have to spruce any of them up. Some of them they had to take down the modern lighting and modern signs and put up old vintage ones, the old ones that they used to have up. But, for example, Musso and Frank Grill, that is the restaurant and bar that's in the opening of the film. We should go there, yeah, honestly. Yeah, L.A.'s oldest restaurant, I believe. Really? It's very classy, and that's where Rick and Oh, can Cliff... we not afford it? No, like, <laughs> we can afford it, bro. All right, all right, listen. <laughs> listen, bro, like a $12 burger. I got it, man. I got it. But we should definitely check it out. Um, that's where Frank and Cliff go because, I mean, not Frank, Rick and Cliff go because Rick is meeting Marvin Schwartz there. So that's Musso and Frank Grill still there. It looks exactly the same on the inside. Casa Vega is a Mexican restaurant on Ventura Boulevard in Sherman Oaks, which is in the Valley in Los Angeles. If you live in LA, you've probably driven past it a million times. It is exactly exactly the same. And it's often used by celebrities and, and famous people because they have a back entrance that accommodates celebrities and, and, and famous people so that they don't get hounded by the public, as well as very low lighting on the inside. So virtually you'll be okay and incognito while you eat your meal. Now, Cinerama Dome is still there, and they got a great shot of that in its exterior. El Coyote Mexican Cafe is still there. Fox Bruin Theater, the Westwood Theater, that is also still there. That's the theater that uh, Sharon Tate goes to to watch her movie, Cicada is an Italian restaurant in this film. It's also in real life, still there. LAX, we have that shot when they get back from Italy, and Rick and Francesca, his new Italian wife, are walking way ahead of Cliff, who is pushing their luggage. That is in one of those really well-known tunnels at the LAX airport when you're outbounding and heading to ground transportation. The Playboy Mansion was and is still there, exactly the way it is. It took them a while to get the rights to shoot there. Uh, the Pussycat Theater is also in this film. 
Tarantino's new Beverly Cinema is actually in this movie. It's got a sneaky cameo. It is actually the adult movie theater premiere in the background. Oh, my God. When Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring are going inside of the restaurant, the, Mexican the El restaurant. Coyote Mexican yeah. Cafe, which is their last meal. Sharon Tate goes... Is that the, isn't that the movie new, the dirty, the picture, dirty theater? picture theater? They have movie premieres. Yeah, they're fun. Oh my god, that's the new Beverly in the distance. And then we also have Spawn Ranch, which we talked about uh, earlier, was recreated after it was destroyed by a fire in the 1970s. And again, the Van Nuys Drive-in was recreated using Paramount Drive-in pictures that marquee was built to full size. And those are the some of the most popular real-life locations that are, for the most part, still in L.A., look exactly the same. Some recreated a little bit here and there. And in addition to the miniatures we talked about with the Van Nuys Drive-In, the airplane, which Tarantino loves using miniatures for, if you love Kill Bill, you recognize that, is also a miniature for sure. A miniature was made for the airplane for the Pan Am flight to I've, and from Italy. I've driven by Costa Vega probably thousands of times. I used to drive by it on my way to work back then. Probably, yeah, a thousand times as well. Yeah, it's crazy. And it just still looks the same. Like, uh, they didn't even change it. <laughs> Although, right. I've never eaten there, have you? I've never eaten there either. We should. What kind we of should hit up every have? spot on in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time tour? A food Absol- tour? Absolutely. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood food tour? We're going to El Coyote, we're going to Casa Vega, and we're going to Frank and Musso. Musso and it's Frank not Grill. that expensive. It's like a nice steak it's restaurant. Just, dude, it's a yeah. restaurant. It's yeah. an LA restaurant. They're all the same. It's just yeah. old and famous. That's why. It's not like it's a five-star dining experience or anything like that. Yeah, it's that. definitely not five-star. Yeah. Oh, Casa Vega is way cheaper. Yeah, Casa Vegas. We should go to Casa Vega. An affordable restaurant. It's yeah. totally fine. Hell yeah. How about we go into the casting and some more of the pre-production and production stuff, and then we'll take an intermission and then actually talk about the movie. Because Let's do it. We are an Dense. hour in, and we're, we haven't even got to the movie yet. Now, casting again began in January 2018. Leonardo DiCaprio was the first one to sign on. He Obviously. actually took a pay cut to collaborate with only Tarantino. Only $20 million. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he probably pulled like only 15 He usually makes at least, I'm sure, 25 30 20 is his quota, but he gets at more least. sometimes. So he took a pay cut because he wanted to work with QT again. I mean, he was terrific in Django Unchained, and it's Tarantino. And this was a leading role as well. Al Pacino was being considered for the role at the same time, too, and he eventually signed on. And then in February 2018, they cast Brad Pitt as Pitt, as Cliff Booth. Now, this was insane news because Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, insane casting duo, two of the biggest stars in the history of film for modern audiences. Everyone on the planet knows these guys and knows their faces. To be in the same movie together as co-leads, basically, to an extent, you know, supporting actor, lead yeah, actor, but... Yeah. A lot of people argue that it's Cliff Booth's the lead role, but it's really Rick Dalton. But, I mean, what a duo to have on the screen together. You know, that's only happened a few times where where you have people like that. I mean, probably Paul Newman and uh, Robert Redford. That's Tarantino built it as the the biggest duo since Newman and Redford. Yeah, that's probably the biggest movies together. They were were in obviously Butch Butch Cassidy's son as a kid. It's like Steve Carell in Anchorman. I mean, Bruce Almighty. Um, but uh, also The Sting, which is a really great movie as well. Now, in March 2018, Robbie had also expressed interest in working with Tarantino and eventually signed on as Sharon Tate. Zoe Bell was confirmed she would appear as well, a regular in Tarantino's films, as well as a stunt actor in many of his films as well. Then in May, he finished out the cast with Tim Roth, Kurt Russell, Michael Masden, Timothy Oliphant, Damian Lewis, Luke Perry, Emile Hirsch, Dakota Fanning, Clifton Collins Jr., Keith Jefferson, Nicholas Hammond, Al Pacino, Scoot McNary's got a great cameo in this movie too. He plays the guy that gets gunned down by Jake Hill, Jake Cahill, and Bounty Law, Spencer Garrett, James Remar, Mike Moe. Oh, it's the Lancer. 
No, it's Bounty Law. Lancer's the show that he's You're right. casting my on. You're right, my bad, my bad. Yeah, 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 I got you, bro. And then eventually we also got uh, Damon Harriman as Charles Manson, who also played Charles Manson in Mindhunter. Fun fact there. Lena Dunham, Austin Butler, Danny Strong, Raphael Zerakaya, uh, Rumor Willis, Drama Walker, Margot Qualley, and Fer- Margaret. Margaret Qualley. Sorry, <laughs> I said Margot, didn't I? <laughs> Was this the first thing you'd ever seen Austin Butler in? Uh, I, I, I think it was say, the first thing I ever saw. I can't him tell in. if I'd ever seen him in anything before, Let me unless just he's in a check. movie. But, but yeah. it was definitely the first thing I saw Margaret Qualley in. And but she's, speaking she... of him, so when Austin Butler auditioned for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he was not aware of which character he was being considered for. Tarantino told him it was just for a villain or a hero on Lancer, which is the TV show that Jake, I mean that uh, Rick Dalton was guesting on. When in fact it was actually for Tex Watson, the serial killer, to prepare for her audition. Maya Hawk, who was also cast, practiced with her father, Ethan Hawk. And moving on to, did you find out? I mean, Maya already knew Tarantino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sydney Sweeney w- also was in this movie, too. I, I didn't realize she was in this <laughs> movie until right? seeing it in theaters because she's just a couple shots. I'm like, it's fucking Sydney Sweeney. Yeah, nobody knew who she was back then. Um, he was in The Bling Ring. He played one of the girls' boyfriends. Oh, was he? In The Bling Ring. Oh, okay, so if you cope with this movie, gotcha. Wait, no. Oh, wait, no, this is a TV series version of it. Never mind. Yeah, I've never seen him or anything before. He was in the original TV movie that Sofia Coppola made that was based off – her film was based off of this. So actually, this was the first thing I had ever seen Austin Butler in, ever. I didn't know who he was because I never saw him on his TV shows, obviously. But he was in um, uh, the Green Lan- the Arrow show for like two years on CW. It's crazy. Yeah. The Rise. The Rise. But Margaret Qualley – both those both those actors are terrific and they're really blowing up right now. Yeah, big time. Margaret She's Qualley, got a, a thriller coming out next week. Um, yeah, the sexual thriller one. Yeah. Um, it's in theaters right now. Oh, is it released? Yeah, but her her she's the daughter of Andy McDowell. Is she really? Google it. They look fucking exactly the Holy same. Holy crap! She does look exactly Margaret like Margaret Qualley him. is Andy McDowell's daughter. Dude, I had no idea. That's pretty goddamn. But you wild. can. It's like they have this, such similar features. Yeah, they do. Now to continue the casting. Burt Reynolds, like I said, was originally cast as George Spawn in May 2018, but unfortunately passed away in September before filming his scenes and was replaced by Bruce Dern, who before that was in Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, so they have a working relationship together. Reynolds did a rehearsal and script reading. His last performance technically as an actor was doing a rehearsal for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. After reading the script and learning that Pitt would be portraying Booth, Reynolds told Tarantino, you got to have somebody say, you're pretty for a stunt guy, and that line does appear in the film. Bruce, Bruce Lee says it to Cliff Booth in the movie. That's what you're they pr- tell me. That's what they tell me. <laughs> and now the last thing Reynolds did before he died was run lines with his assistant for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Aww. Tarantino initially approached Jennifer Lawrence to portray Manson family member Squeaky From, played by Dakota Fanning. She was interested, but something just didn't work out, probably scheduling conflicts. Tarantino also spoke to Tom Cruise about playing Cliff Booth, who oh was being my considered God. for the role. I think that could have definitely worked. That would have been fun, too. That would have been that freaking been awesome. Man, that would have been cool. Charlie Day was approached and was a choice really? to play uh, Charles Manson, but Charlie Day did not show up for the interview because he did not want to see himself in that kind of role. Macaulay Culkin auditioned what? for an undisclosed role. <laughs> His first cares. audition in eight years. And, oh, I'm you sorry, with Charlie, with Charlie Day. Yeah. Macaulay Culkin auditioned for a role. Uh-huh. Uh, it was the first audition in eight years. It was also initially reported that Sam L. Jackson was in talks for a major role. And Lou Temple was the actor who played a minor role in the film that said Jack Nicholson shot an undisclosed role for the movie. Honestly, Damien Lewis 
might be the best cast actor because he looks just like fucking Steve McQueen. Yeah, that's a great. It's, it's crazy. It's a great like secret cameo. Maybe not yeah. a lot of people don't realize, but he's playing Steve McQueen when they enter the Playboy Mansion in in Sharon Tate Parks with she's with uh, Polanski, right? Mm-hmm. That guy who's I'm gonna tell you a story. Smoking yeah. cigarette. He's Steve McQueen in the movie. So yeah. a lot of people don't really maybe don't know who Steve McQueen is, but one of the biggest stars of all time passed away so early. He died when he was in his 40s. But man, Damien Lewis, he looks just like him. It's crazy. When I saw this movie for the first time, I'm like, oh my god, it looks just like him. It's awesome. And, uh, yeah. He's he's a big actor to just to just do like a fucking. 30 minute 30 second scene in a Tarantino movie like that's awesome yeah and I, I love Steve McQueen and and I, I highly recommend checking out his movies I mean the great escape is referenced multiple times in this movie and they even shot and superimposed footage of Leo as Steve McQueen in that role with that great story of were you actually in contention for the great escape and one of those little anecdotes that Rick Dalton hates telling because he really wasn't in contention for getting the role as well <laughs> nah it was just rumors <laughs> But also just, you know, but then Tar- it's like, it's his imagination, I think. Yeah. It's like his, his whole, like what he wanted. What it could have been. Yeah. Because when you read the book, it goes more into detail about Rick Dalton and how he sabotaged Bounty Law season three. Why didn't get picked how up? How did he do it? Because he's trying to be a movie star and was just a, a mess on set and uh-huh. basically ruined relationships at that studio that was making the show. Okay. So then he's like, that's why he had to take this meeting with Schwartz and actually ask for it. That's why he says, yeah, they'll never, nobody will ever forgive me for, for the last season of Bounty Law. Yeah, that's so he's, he's talking to. about the studio uh-huh. for him basically ruining the production and being a pain in the ass because he wanted to be Steve McQueen. So, gotcha. I, But I, I just love the infusion of Steve McQueen as well as old Hollywood in this movie because one of my favorite things that Tarantino's done with his career in the second half of it is his historical rewriting of fiction. Histor- I mean, historical fiction. And just basically doing his own kind of revision of history obviously inglorious bastards is a massive famous example of it but then doing it here django django and chains yeah. also well kind of i mean that's not exa- it's that that's not like a tape. hero cowboy a slave turned hero cowboy is like it's definitely think sure it's, but i'm talking about a historical, historical event a, a yeah. documented historical yeah. event yeah, yeah, and changing yeah. the history Absolutely, of it here yeah, yeah not saying that never happened maybe it could have you never know but this was another historical events with the murders of sharon tate and well the tate the the bianca murders and then making his own history about it which is i think something that he does so well and has a knack for and i I think it's so intriguing and no one does anything like it really like to the extent of perfection of him and it's like this crazy cool style that he's developed and and obviously i'm assuming the movie critic might have some of that infused but we'll find out because people thought that his next film would be based on an actual movie critic it's not. That was all speculation and rumor. I would say definitely because um, he's probably going to be uh, watching movies from whatever era that were real movies. So I think we're going to see some real people um, and real famous celebrities from the past in that movie as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's actually a really good point. But the historical fiction, I think it's just such a fun genre that he's been playing with the last oh, decade yeah. and a half and blending facts with fiction. It's an absolute blast. And how about I'll explain the... The Sharon Tate and uh, La Bianca murders, and then we'll go into our intermission, and then we'll come back and talk about the movie. Explain away. Okay, so the Tate La Bianca murders were a series of murders perpetrated by members of the Manson family during August 8th to August 10th in 1969 in Los Angeles, California, under the direction of Tex Watson and supposedly Charles Manson. But the thing with that is Charles Manson wasn't at the scene. That's why he was technically... He got obviously blamed for uh, to an extent, but he wasn't there committing the murders. It was really Tex Watson was kind of the the ringleader of these 
this, these killings, which is why I think Tarantino only briefly showed Charles Manson in the final cut of the film. On the night of August 8th to 9th, four members of the Manson family, Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Kreinwinkel, and Linda Kasabian, drove from Spawn Ranch to... 10,050 Cielo Drive in Bandit Canyon, home of Sharon Tate and her husband, film director Roman Polanski. The, the group murdered Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, guests Jay Sebring, a celebrity hairdresser, and her rumored boyfriend, Abigail Folger, a coffee heiress for, what was it, Folgers? Folgers. And then her boyfriend, Wolchik uh, Frioski, an aspiring screenwriter, and Stephen Parent, an 18-year-old visiting the property's caretaker. Polanski was working on a film in Europe, so he wasn't there. The Manson cult leader, an aspiring musician who had tried to get a contract with record producer Terry Melcher, who had previously rented the house. So that's the guy, Terry, that's referenced when, I'm a friend of Terry's. Is Terry still live here? The following night... Those four people, in addition to Manson, Leslie Van Houten, and Steve Clem Grogan, committed two more murders. So Manson committed murders the night, the next night with the Bianca, La Bianca murders. And so that happened, I believe, was it a store, I think? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, character. Okay, fun fact about Maya Hawke's character, Flower Child. She is shown to having cold feet on going through with the murders and who flees the scene in that 1959 Ford Galaxy mm-hmm. based on Linda Kasabian who eventually became a witness for the prosecution and the murder trial of Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Susan Atkinson. So did she do that in real life? So she she really got away uh-huh. and became a witness in the prosecution for the murders. So in real life, Kasabian was ordered by Tex Watson to wait in the car during which she heard the murders inside the Tate residence take place and witnessed the murder of Wolchik Frioski outside the house. Kasabian claimed that she wanted to drive away but was too scared. Also, they killed someone at Spawn Ranch in real life. So Donald Shorty Shea was a ranch hand who was employed by George Spawn, uh, played by Bruce Dern in this film. And Donald Shea had tried to warn Spawn about the dangerous nature of the Manson family who were staying on the ranch. At some point, he was jumped by the gang and then killed, with various body parts being buried, buried around the ranch. One of the killers was Steve Clem Grogan, the hippie, who knifes the tire and is then confronted by Cliff in the film. As he starts to change the tire, you can see the cowboy in a corral in the background. This was probably most likely Shorty, as he was the only ranch hand who would have been working there at the time. His body was not found until 1977, when Clem agreed to show the police where the remains could be found. Yeah, so this movie, Spawn Ranch, all these characters, a lot of them were real. I mean, Squeaky and then George Spawn really was a man who owned this ranch who was partially blind, 80 years old, let the Manson family live on his ranch. So that, it's all real. It's pretty crazy that all these characters really existed, except for probably Pussycat was created by Tarantino. I saw, yeah, I saw, I can't remember what interview it was, but um, Tarantino said he became obsessed with the entire story, and he read everything he could about the story, and he even visited the ranch and... Um, his obsessive interest in it really poured into this into this film, and he's an obsessive guy. And this movie has so much goddamn detail that that's why I think it, going back to why it's so low on Letterboxd and seven point six for such a r- incredible movie, especially yeah. a Tarantino movie. I think it's to because, be number eight. Yeah, I mean, I think that maybe it's not gr- it's not for modern audiences, obviously, because we're so, so many younger film goers and listeners. I mean, watchers are, are really used to like fast moving movies, lots of editing, lots of shots, lots of text. action. You know, I mean, what's the the rule in Hollywood? It's like you got to cut every two to three seconds now. I mean, there's 
scenes in this movie of, like you said, uh, Cliff Booth driving for six minutes. I think a lot of people aren't really used to that kind of filmmaking and storytelling, which I wish they would give it a second or third chance because this movie, you appreciate it more and more every single time you watch it. And I, I'm, like I said, I've seen it six times now. I've seen half of his filmography this year, a couple, a couple of them in theaters as well. And I still think that every time I watch it, it gets higher up on my list of not just my favorite Tarantino movie, but I think his best made movie. There's no way Jackie Brown's better than this movie. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> well, when it comes to Letterboxd? Yeah. To the ranking, there's no I mean, way. Letterboxd, I mean, Jackie's great, but yeah, it's not Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's not Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. So, do you want to head into our intermission? Let's do it, because we're an hour and like 15 into this episode already, and there's so much still to talk about. We haven't even talked about the goddamn movie. What movie? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> But before we continue, the very best way you can support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to leave us a five-star review on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, a.k.a. iTunes. We love to read the written reviews, which you can leave on Apple Podcasts, but this helps us get seen by new people on the platform. So everyone who's left us a five-star review, we appreciate you so much. We're almost at 2,000 on both platforms, so help us get those numbers up. Those so are, close! Those are rookie numbers. you got to pump those up. And also... Another great way to support the show is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Patreon financially supports the show and ensures that we can do it full time without Anthony having to get in a second job to pay for Trader Joe's. <laughs> we have five different tiers of membership. <laughs> that salmon is expensive. $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100. Every single tier, no matter if you're paying 2 or 100 gets access to our weekly chat, which is exclusively on Patreon only every Wednesday, as well as a free bonus episode. Well, not free, a uh, uh, minimum $2 payment bonus episode every week. Less than a cup of coffee. Less than a cup of coffee. <laughs> to get a free bonus episode, no, another bonus episode as well. $10 will get you access to our Discord. We have watch parties on there. We're chatting with you every day on Discord. $25 get awesome perks like free merchandise, a personalized episode. You pick a topic and we do it for you as well. Some other stuff, video messages are a great perk. And then the $100 chosen one tier, that's the granddaddy package. You get so many great perks. My favorites are probably the personal watch party. You pick a movie and we'll watch it with you. We'll have just the three of us. Just, just the, the three, three of, of us. us. Twin thing right there. That's twin direct. Twinning. 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 Sick reference, Sick bro. reference, bro. We'll watch whatever movie you want. And then also, custom episode. And after three months, you come on the show for a fun guest segment. We'll pop you in on the intermission. Have a blast. Thank you so much for everyone who is a patron. We appreciate you so much. And please become one today at patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost Podcast if you aren't one already. Please, Lou. Please, please let us let us please. keep the Patreon. <laughs> please, Lou. You don't know where I've been, Lou. <laughs> you don't know where I've been. <laughs> Sick reference, bro. Your references are out of control. Everybody knows it. Of course, this episode is sponsored by our friends at movieposters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 at movieposters.com to get 10% off your order Today, they have a gigantic selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their gigantic poster library. They also have all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting. For all of your poster needs, you got to go to movieposters.com and use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. Now, let's head into our intermission. Real on... quick, though, you have a new set decoration right. that looks Isn't amazing that right next to your head. Yeah, Olivia Davis hand-knitted us, or hand-embroidered uh, us, this beautiful little creation of the Shining Twins. So thank you, Olivia, for sending this to us, making it for us. It's on the set. It's it crochet. Looks, yeah, yeah, embroidered. Right? I'm, not, I'm not sure that it's embroidered or crochet. I'm not 
exactly sure the correct terminology for the type of hand crafts, craftsmanship it takes to create one of these beautiful designs. But it's Olivia, wonderful. Yeah, Olivia, thank you so much. You know how much we love the shining. It's it's literally a foot away from my shining poster, and it's of the identical twins that are Grady's children. So thank you so much for that. It's, it's really beautiful. I love it. I love it. I've always wanted one of those, but handmade gift from a fan. Thank you so much. Now let's get into our intermission where we're going to try to stump each other with some fun movie questions, starting with our movie quote competition. You ready? I'm ready. Well, now, I've always believed that if done properly, armed robbery doesn't have to be a totally unpleasant experience. Good one. Say it again. Well, now, I've always believed that if done properly, armed robbery doesn't have to be a totally unpleasant experience. True romance. Nah. Kind of, kind of, yeah, similar tone. A young Brad Pitt, uh, I'll give you a hint, is in it. Thelma Lewis. Yeah, there you go. Great movie. It's so good. I watched it like a year and a half ago. It's fucking awesome. It's Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott, bro. (laughs) Like at the ending with the, I'm not going to say what they do at the end. It's just like, let's go. Fuck it. (laughs) Fuck it. it! Fuck it. (laughs) That's the ultimate fuck it. Yeah, it really is. That is is the epitome. (laughs) I love it. That is the epitome of fuck it. I love the end of that movie. (laughs) It's great, man. Good for her, man. Your your, uh, quiz question now. One thing about living in Santa Clarita, I never could stomach all them damn vampires. Is this The Lost Boys? It is. Nice. It is. <laughs> I haven't seen that in a while. I think it deserves a rewatch pretty soon. Maybe an episode. I haven't seen it in a while. Either. Maybe an episode. It's been a while. That is, for vampire movies, it's been a while is... <laughs> since I have seen The Lost Boys. It's been a while. We're going to start a grunge band, too. Um, the Lost You could start a grunge boy <laughs> band. <laughs> we got some more margarita. <laughs> got some more, clearly got some more margarita. All right, Anthony, guess this movie release year. The Virgin Suicides. Sick Coppola pick, man. 1996. 99. Damn. 99. Damn. 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 All right, I guess it makes sense. We, yeah, Kristen Stewart. I mean, Kristen is pretty. She's not super young in that. That makes sense. She's like, bring it it's on. Not, it's bring, not, it, bring it on was like 2000, 2001, it's not, right? It's not, yeah. like dire, it's not like Interview with a Vampire Young. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Idiot. Just kidding. Hey. You're, you're the smartest person I know. Got it on tape. <laughs> video. <laughs> Got it on video. Digital. Yeah, if it, if, we, if Anthony had his way, we'd film the podcast on film. <laughs> that would be dope, bro. <laughs> we should hire we a film it. crew just to do it for one episode. If we could afford I mean, that's expensive. Yeah, it'd, it'd have to be a short episode. <laughs> it'd get like a thousand views. Like, it, no point at all doing it. It would not be worth it. Um, What year? I did another. I did a couple of movies too, but Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, what do you know? Uh, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> what year did The Outsiders come out? 1969. <laughs> 83, 83. I was way <laughs> off. <laughs> Rob Lowe's in that. Only Ralph Macchio's in that. Oh, I wasn't even. <laughs> I didn't know he made that. He made that. Yeah. Tom Cruise's Crooked Teeth. <laughs> they were Front very crooked. I was thinking of a different movie. 1969. Think of a completely different movie. Not that one. But now, idiot. Ralph Macchio. Macchio. Macchio, not Macchio. I said Macchio. I know, but I'm, I'm correcting our previous mistakes on the show. a year ago. Yeah, for Gabe <laughs> and his dad. Macchio. <laughs> All right, Anthony. Dude, Karate Kid's so good. The Karate Kid it's is so fucking good. slaps. It's such a good fucking movie. Anthony was 
you put, when we were on our way to see this movie, actually, Anthony's like, oh, dude, you know what song I listened to the other night? I listened to uh, um, Cruel Cruel Summer. Cruel Summer. Um, I put it on. We were blasting it. Then I just go, Karate Kid's better than any movie I've seen this year. And I think it's true. I think it's true, too. Karate Kid's fucking awesome. Karate Kid's fucking great. Fucking sick movie. Oh, my God. (laughs) Cruel Summer. All right, another L.A. movie. Movie pop quiz time. Name Brad Pitt's character in True Romance. Um, I'm going to go with Fred. Floyd. Floyd. Floyd, Floyd, Floyd. All right. Who directed The Lost Boys? Who the fuck did direct The Lost Boys? Good question. Tough, a tough one. Um, hmm. Who would who would direct a vampire movie like that? Like it's it's very stylish. It is stylish. Think stylish before the two thousands, but not like necessarily like great stylish. But like gritty stylish, but also like <laughs> not too gritty at the same time. <laughs> That's I'm not giving you any more hints, motherfucker. But it has that like eighties tone that like like that style. Um, like even like near dark looks like the same vampire world almost. Ah, Oliver Stone. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just shooting shots. Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher. Because you brought him up earlier. It's funny because I actually picked another movie that that was my quiz question like two weeks ago, a Schumacher movie. I just can't remember which one. Anyways. Anyways. Let's move on to... Awkward. Anthony, we have any haters, unsubscribes, raider haters? Do we we have any raider haters? What are we working with this week? We got... Jay Kelly wrote in my Susan May clip, Talking about the box office. You got them too many onions in the sauce glasses. Unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> this is from, uh, I think, the Too Many Cooks in the Kitchen video. Remember? Too many Cooks in the Kitchen, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, that was the only subscribe unsubscribe. Because we just filmed the other day. We just filmed yesterday, actually. Yeah, that's it for our Raider haters. But it was a good one. All right, now, how about I see if we got any new five-star reviews? I take a look-see. Last time we checked, I don't think we had any new ones, but we'll take a, take a look. Oh, no, we last could, time we, we checked, we couldn't, look, couldn't we access couldn't them. It. Yeah. That's right. Let's let's get to our podcast. They, they fucked up, man. Because uh, Apple Podcasts, Apple. usually all the reviews are listed right there mm-hmm. to view. All right, they're back. They're back. He's back. He's, he's not. He's not back. <laughs> Sick reference, bro. Uh, love the pod. I wonder if we got any new ones. All right, uh, Doctor Applesauce. He wrote, "Love the podcast, five stars." Hey guys, I've been loving the show. I've been binge watching it for like the past month now. I found you guys because about a month ago I watched Pulp Fiction for the very first time ever. Wow. I'm 32 years old, and I wanted to get some deep dive insights and information to it because I am very fascinated with how Quentin Tarantino creates his movies and such. So I found your episode on it, and I was like, hey, these guys are really good. Let me find some (laughs) other episodes to listen to. And yeah, I've been a fan ever since. Thank you for all the hard work and dedication that you guys put into your show. It is truly one of the best movie podcasts around. Also, unsubscribed. Unsubscribed. Dr. Applesauce, thank you for bringing a smile and a tear to my day and that was such a sweet review to read also glad you liked pulp fiction and 
It's a great movie, and that was a good episode. That's one of our best. That's one of my, yeah, one of my all-time. Did we do it this year, right? Yeah, three months ago. I think that might be the best thumbnail I've ever made, too. It's probably the best one you ever it's made, It's a yeah. fucking banger of a graphic and yeah. thumbnail because I designed it off the poster a bit. But I, instead of, like, a Quentin Tarantino film, I wrote, like, Raiders of Lost Podca- Raiders of Lost Podcast episode or something like that. So I'm really proud of that graphic, and I think it's it's been popping on YouTube. We got, like, 100,000 views on it. It's our by far. It's far and away our best one this year. Yeah, nothing's even close to it. I'm really, I'm really proud of that episode. That, we put a lot into that, just like how we put a lot into this one. We did put a lot into this one. I mean, the Tarantino ones. I mean, they're just there's just so much to discuss. And there it's is. So, it's so dense. We have one more part of our intermission, and then we have to get to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, Anthony, my streaming recommendation for everyone listening is: I figured because this movie's kind of a western, and it's old school Hollywood, I'd pick. A Western made by an old-school Hollywood legend, Unforgiven on Max. Nice. By Quentin Tarantino. I mean, by Clint Eastwood. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, so Max, the one to watch for Unforgiven. The one to watch for Unforgiven. Oh, my God. So, I also have a Max movie that's also connected to this film. It's one of my favorite movies. I have the poster in my bedroom. You see a scene of it in this movie. It's The Great Escape. And it's on Max. And if you haven't seen it, there's a reason why Tarantino was obs- is obsessed with it. There's a reason why he references it in this movie for five minutes. It's because it just is flat out one of the best American movies ever made. It's just... I think I might watch it tonight, honestly. Because it is so fucking... Go- it's long. It's three You're hours. you time to watch it tonight? Actually, maybe not tonight. But. I mean, it's already 8.30 p.m., bro. Yeah, maybe not and tonight. And you've had two margaritas over there. You're looking like Rick Dalton right now in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> Singing. Um, but The Great Escape is an unbelievable POW movie. It's got so much heart, so much humor, so many great characters. Oh, my God. And it's just so much fun. you got to check out The Great Escape. It it, cap- it has that old school tone that I love yeah. so much, like the lighthearted, like seriousness. Yeah. I think it's super fun. It's like lighthearted grittiness. Yeah, I love I love that movie. It's a great great pick. And then Steve McQueen is just the epitome of cool in it. Yeah, man, gone too soon. Gone too soon. I think he was like forty two when he really? passed away. Yeah, he was so young. It's crazy. But he was like the biggest star alive at the time. He really was. Now let's get back into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now this film, ha- like every Tarantino movie. Has some controversies that come along with it because whenever he makes a movie, those journos, oh they come God. for him. Journalists. The journos come for Tarantino marks. over every little thing about his film. Now, uh, there are two specifically that I want to talk about first before we talk more about the characters in the story. The first one is Sharon Tate. And obviously, you know, Margot Robbie is third build in this movie. She's a huge actor coming off Wolf of Wall Street. And she's obviously an A-lister superstar right now. Yeah. She's freaking Barbie. However, a lot of complaints came out after seeing the film from a lot of journalists, a lot of movie reviewers and critics that she didn't have enough dialogue compared to Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. Now, this is – there's a reason why. I mean, a lot of people, I think they misinterpret what this film is. It's not a Sharon Tate movie. It's not a Charles Manson movie, even though the first – Bit of news about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood before it's getting made. Oh, Quentin Tarantino is going to make a Charles Manson movie. Going to make a Charles Manson murdering of Sharon Tate movie. That's not at all what this movie's about. This is not a Sharon Tate movie. 
It's not a Charles Manson movie. It's not a Manson family movie. It's a Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth movie. They're the story. They're the plots. They are the main characters of the movie. That's why, you know, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth have most of the dialogue in this film. You know, Sharon Tate, a lot of questions were asked of Tarantino, and he still gets asked about, I'm sure, about the criti- criticized to him about uh, support, like what people call a silent Margot Robbie in this film. You know, sh- people say that she's just basically dancing around, just having fun and smiling and listening to the music the whole movie. And then Tarantino, his main response to the criticism is she's an angelic presence throughout the movie. She's an angelic ghost on earth. To some degree, she's not in the movie. She's in our hearts. So I think if you watched it a few more times, you might understand the purpose of Sharon Tate's character in this film and why she's in the movie and realize it's not a Charles Manson movie. It's not a Manson family murder movie. It's not a Sharon Tate movie. It's a Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth movie. Every synopsis, every trailer is about Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth. Charles Manson has one scene. Polanski, I don't even think he says a line of dialogue in the movie. Maybe a couple of little things offhand in there when they're in the car that you can barely hear. Jay Sebring, he doesn't have a ton of dialogue either, and he's in just as many scenes as Sharon Tate. So I think that people, when Tarantino comes out of the movie, they look at it with a magnifying glass, with a microscope, to make themselves make sure that they're happy with every beat of it. It's a silly criticism. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, Because from that perspective, it means that every movie, the male and female actors should have the exact same amount of dialogue. Is that what they're saying that should happen? That, that That's kind of like the world I think a lot of journalists live in. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, uh, every movie's different, and every movie has lead actors, or they have female actors as the leads, and and they all vary. And it's not, it, and it, it's ridiculous because Tarantino made four movies in a row of female leads Jackie Brown, Death Proof, Kill Bill 1 and 2. So, and he's made some of the most loved. And celebrated female characters in film history. And Glorious Bastards has two of them. Yeah, and Glorious Bastards has two. I'm sorry, and Glorious Bastards, I forgot. So five movies with heavy female leads, like all over the fucking movies. I mean, Pulp Fiction, me Wallace. And um, it's just a silly criticism. It may, it really makes no sense. And I mean, I've never heard anyone say anything about that. I, I've never never heard anyone say that about any other movie in history. At, like it's just a, when pe- when that came out. And they they showed this film, I believe, at was it Cannes or was yeah, it Cannes. Venice? It was Cannes. And a journalist was they there was the first person to ask him that because it was the premiere, and he's like, "I reject your hypothesis." That was his response. Even Margot Robbie laughed at the question. Yeah. yeah, do you think Margot Robbie took that job? Like, oh, I hate this job. I, I have hate to be you, in Quentin, a Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino movie. I hate you, Quentin. This is bullshit. You know he's gonna put me in the posters. You know, Margot Robbie loved being there. I'm sure she loved from the interviews I saw of her. And every, everything I read about her, she had a wonderful time making the movie, and she was so happy to be to be there uh, to work with her favorite director. So it's just, and I've never heard that criticism before in a movie in history, and it's absurd. It makes no sense at all. Like, it, are you are we really going to add up everybody's dialogue? The guy who plays Polanski doesn't speak. Yeah, he doesn't even speak. He, doesn't say, yeah. he says, like, something to Sharon Tate in the car, but yeah. you can't even hear it. Yeah. He, oh, no, he throws the, he says one line, Fuck off, Samperstein, his dog. He throws the ball. Yeah, he yeah, says yeah. one line of dialogue. He's Roman Polanski. He says one line of dialogue. And also, it def- Sharon Tate, I think, also represents like a loss of innocence um, in the world. You know what I mean? And so I think that Tarantino was interested in portraying um, this life that was taken, in a way. And the beauty of that life and um, didn't really have to do with Cliff and Rick's the plot. 
but um, I believe that's I, I think that's definitely one of the uh, main symbols of what, what the symbolism of Sharon Tate there is like a loss of innocence and a loss of purity uh, and and something that was uh, something beautiful that was taken from taken from the world by evil people. Yeah, I think that just angelic ghost is a great way to put it because she's gone and she was murdered and there's a lot of controversy of Tarantino even portraying these characters on film in the real life story to an extent. Oh, not completely, obviously changing it up and doing his own historical fiction. You know, Sharon Tate's sister was originally upset about the film getting made. Then after she saw it and spoke to both Robbie and Tarantino, she ended up loving the film and loving her performance as her sister and thought that she captured her so well. And so I think they got the blessing from the Tate family eventually after the movie came out. So I think that... But no, you're right. Everybody, every time a Tarantino movie comes out, people look for something to criticize. Always controversy. Like, another, a big one is, like, a violence against women. But it's like, what about the violence against men in all of his movies? Beatrix Kiddo kill, kills a hundred people in the first movie. Holy shit. But even just violence of men on men in the movies. Well, it's fucking insane, the amount of fucking violence. And so it's just ridiculous. But I, and I remember this interview for Kill Bill where this journalist, like, went at him for saying, like, it why are you celebrating violence and why are you like this is like this is horrible watching uh uma thurman just kill people with, with a sword because it's so much fun yeah that, that was basically his response but now it like people celebrate like a strong female action hero killing people now it's like now people want it you know what i mean but when he did it oh how dare you show so much violence on screen but now we're like applauding it and just all the journalists are, like, celebrating, like, every time a John Wick movie comes out or whatever. What I love about Tarantino, he's like, fuck off, I don't give a fuck. And yeah. then the third act of this movie, I'm going to have Cliff Booth bash somebody's face into a wall, yeah. into a headstand, into a nightstand, and just cave someone's face in because I don't care what you think. That was the other big criticism is the violence against the woman in this film. And that moment in particular where he's bashing the girl's face, head into the wall, into the table, <laughs> into the fucking window. I mean, into the, into the framed photo. But, I mean, this person killed innocent people. Like, that girl killed a pregnant woman. And you you guys are mad that she she got beat up in a movie? It's kind of silly. Like, this person literally murdered innocent people in their home. I know plenty of women that that's their favorite scene in the whole movie. Yeah, same. <laughs> Honestly, I, know, <laughs> I know lots of women who fucking love Tarantino movies. It's just journalists, man. The journals. The, the modern journalists. It's just ridiculous, man. Once they get going, man. My God, literally, ta- like, like, no I, wonder AI is replacing some of them. Yeah, for real. <laughs> like, imagine, oh, great, Tar- they already wrote their article before the movie comes out. I, I just want to see the reaction when the movie was over. It's like, Margot Robbie only said two hundred words in that movie. This is bullshit. I think is Margo's that what it was? Terrific in this movie. Margot's fantastic, yeah. and she, also she she um she has a, similar features to Sharon Tate. She really looks a lot like her. It's yeah. very reminiscent of her, and I know a lot of people make fun of the bare feet of Sharon Tate in the movie theater. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually character driven. So Sharon Tate was famous for not liking wearing shoes. And in real life, she hated wearing shoes even in public and even outside. And it would take any possibility and opportunity to not wear shoes in public unless the situation absolutely called for it, like a very formal thing. Tate would even go so far as to wear rubber bands on her feet to give the illusion that she was actually wearing sandals when she went out to eat at restaurants. And if you look at, if you Google Sharon Tate photos, I did this morning, she's not wearing shoes in 95% of the photos of her <laughs> on the internet. She's not wearing shoes. She, there's like shots of her like outside on standing on concrete and in public spaces. She's like a hobbit. Yeah, no shoes. <laughs> in pretty much all of the photo shoots she was in, she didn't wear shoes. That's really why Tarantino put the Sharon Tate story in the film. <laughs> but I think that 
even outside of Sharon Tate, there's a lot of feet in this movie. I think he's. Geez, I think he's fucking with yeah. people on purpose. Because Especially the Spawn Ranch shot in when, the living in room. In the living room, everyone's feet there's are in like the air. There's like eight pairs of feet in the air. And then Pussy's feet in the, Rick Dalton, in the yeah. car. Like, I think he's Tarantino like at this point yeah. is like, you know what? You want to keep making fun of me about this? I'm going to put more feet in the movie than you've ever seen before exactly. in your entire life. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's the first controversy, which we both think is pretty ridiculous. I know everybody no who listens to this show thinks it's ridiculous, too. Yeah. Now, the second controversy involves Bruce Lee. Yes. So, yes. Tarantino based this depiction of Bruce Lee in the film on stories he'd heard of people who were on sets with Bruce in the past. He also wrote it cleverly where Cliff actually tricks Bruce. Now, a lot of people came out against Tarantino saying that he depicted Bruce as arrogant and not a great martial artist and not knowing what he's doing. And actually, he portrayed Bruce as a great martial artist, but he had Cliff outsmart Bruce in the first two rounds of this fight. So I'll, I'll explain what I'm talking about now. Bruce was obviously, we all know Bruce Lee was a highly skilled martial artist. I'm sorry, and you should preface this with Tarantino is a massive Bruce Lee Enormous fan. Enormous Bruce Lee like fan. Like he, in his, on the New Beverly website, there's a, like a bunch of movie reviews Tarantino wrote about Bruce Lee movies. He, I mean, fucking Kill Bill. Kill Bill, the whole costume is based on Bruce Lee. He is a, like, no, like, there are very few people who are probably bigger fans, movie fans, than of Bruce Lee than Tarantino. I bet you Bruce Lee, if he had seen this movie, probably would have thought it was funny, too. Honestly. Now, again, what I, remember what I said that Cliff Booth tricks Bruce Lee in this scene. So in this scene, it's a flashback where, where uh, Cliff, uh, he drops. Rick Dalton off to the Lancer set, and he asks if they basically, like, they need any help stunting. And, and Rick's like, oh, no, uh, it's uh, whatever his name is is doing the stunts in the in this film. So he's like, oh, yeah, I can't be doing this because of what happened last time I was on a set with that person. Then he goes back to Rick's, to Rick's house to fix his antenna, and then he has a flashback of the last time he worked on a set with that stunt coordinator played by Kurt Russell. And then we flash back to Kurt Russell is in that trailer with Rick Dalton, who's in a tuxedo, and Rick's begging him. We were referencing this earlier to just at least put the wardrobe on Cliff. To, you don't have to put him in the movie, but if you can, mean a lot to him. You know, Do whatever you want to him. Hit him with a Lincoln, light him on fire, throw him off a building. He's just happy. He's a for, great fit for me. He's happy for Randy. the opportunity. Randy. Randy. And, uh, you know, Kurt Russell, Randy eventually agrees, but he also brings up, like, kill his fucking wife, man. I don't dig his vibe. So this is the flashback sequence, and then... Randy succumbs to Rick's pleas and puts Cliff in the wardrobe and the tuxedo and the fake hair, the wig. And then Cliff is just watching Bruce Lee. This is on the set of Green Hornet. Basically just giving speeches and monologues to everyone on set, the stunt people and the coordinators, I'm sure, the stunt fighters and everything like that. And obviously Cliff finds some of the things he's saying is amusing, especially when he says that he could beat Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, easily in a fight. And Cliff Booth, his background, he is a Green Beret. He's a two-time Medal of Honor winner. He is a highly skilled martial artist. He is a killer, not just of people in war, but the rumored killing of his wife. Of, we get you know, that great... guy killed his wife and got away with it. That guy? That guy? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of famous, you know? Kind of famous, you know? <laughs> now, going to this fight, they agree to do three rounds of hand-to-hand fighting. First person, I mean... Best two round, best two out of three. Mm-hmm. Whoever gets put on their ass twice loses. So the first round, Cliff doesn't really react to Bruce's attack. He lets Bruce do a really cool jump kick, knocks him down. Bruce is in phase. Also, this is a great one take. It's incredible the push yeah. of the camera and everything. Yeah. And pull out. Brad's awesome. He's and great. it opens with the shot of just Brad. Yeah, and just they pull drinking, back. The, drinking a milk. Right, yeah. <laughs> he tosses it. Well, you kind of did. <laughs> did I say something that funny? Now. 
Cliff's a clever guy when it comes to fighting, and he's using Bruce Lee's, you know, perceived hubris against him. And he says, try that again, Cato, the the character from Green Hornet. Try it again. Try that. Basically saying, try that same exact move you did again. And what does Bruce do? Bruce takes the bait of Cliff Bates, Cliff Booth's game here. He does the exact same move. And because Cliff, a great, mar- a great fighter himself, knows what's coming, knows exactly what he did, he's obviously knows that Bruce is underestimating him, knows exactly what to do, spins, throws him into the car, wicked funny. So Tarantino is not depicting Cliff as a better fighter than Bruce Lee. He's depicting him tricking Bruce Lee into doing the same move he just did in the first round so that he, so that Cliff, probably knowing that Bruce is a better martial artist than him, has to have get some kind of advantage on him to trick him, throws him into the car. Then the third round happens. They're going hand-to-hand, punch for punch, block for block. You could argue that any man's going to win that third round. Both extremely experienced and skilled fighters. And also, so, I mean, Cliff is a lot bigger than Bruce. Yeah. and He's actually he's also killed people. Yeah, and so weight plays a huge factor into fighting, especially between two people who are professional fighters. And there are different weight classes, essentially. So Cliff actually has an advantage as in the fight. Yeah, and also Cliff's probably killed people with his bare hands. Yeah. So you yeah. got to put that on. So and Bruce was never in an actual real fight. Well, no, no he's been in fights, fights but, but yeah, but not like filmed or anything like that. Yeah, like, exactly. Fun, not but, like Muhammad Ali, who yeah. was the greatest fighter who ever lived. So basically, Tarantino is not saying that Bruce wasn't a great fighter. He's just showing that Cliff Booth was clever at and tricked Bruce Lee into doing the exact same move twice to take advantage of that move. And then you could probably say that any man could have won that third round. Absolutely. It's just, if you watch it again, it's just a tri- he's Cliff tri- tricks Bruce. Yeah. Tricks boot Bruce. Yeah. Cliff tricks Bruce. 100%. And then Randy's wife goes, holy shit. What the fuck did you do to my car? Get the fuck out of here. Get your shit. Get out of here and get fucked. Randy, get your wife murdering friend. Get off the fucking set. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'll handle it. Cliff. <laughs> Get the wardrobe off. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck did you do to my car? <laughs> he's like, I threw your leading man into it. Listen, nobody. He's, and he's beating the fuck out of Bruce. Listen, nobody was beating, nobody the, fuck was beating the fuck out of Bruce. I think that says otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's funny. just a funny scene. It's, yeah. it's great. It's just for character. It's fun. Tongue in cheek. It also takes I mean, everything yeah. so seriously. As people are like, attacking Tarantino, but, like, how many Bruce Lee movies have they even seen? Probably none. Exactly. I guarantee maybe they've seen Enter the Dragon. That's it. Maybe. I, I, I highly maybe. doubt that. You, the journals writing about it probably have never that. seen a Bruce Lee movie. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, they've only, if they have, just seen the most even, popular one. They're just mad to be mad in a way. Um, but I understand why people took offense to it. I could totally see the other side of it. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely. can absolutely see that. But you're right. The way you explain it, Cliff does absolutely trick him. And Bruce, through his arrogance kind of falls for it and i'm sure tarantino like you said talking to a lot of people who work with bruce lee maybe he learned that bruce as amazing of a person as he was and as influential as he was maybe he was a little bit arrogant and maybe he liked to he de- definitely did like to talk so maybe he liked to talk smack you know what he I mean? was the biggest personality on the yeah, planet exactly so i i totally see bruce lee being someone who'd be a smack talker and this is, he was it's proof yeah, like yeah. every interview you watch, like so many interviews that's what he was like that's yeah. why so many fighters 
what they do is they're like Bruce Lee was the OG like trash talker, hyper confident fighter, martial artist. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Now it's like the persona that every MMA fighter and boxer tries to take on. Obviously Muhammad Ali as well. Yeah, because he 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 created a new martial art form, and so he was always saying that this was the best form of well, martial yeah, arts. And he created like MMA basically. Yeah. Like he's the godfather of it. But like him and like he was taking on that boxer persona of just being like larger than life talking but backing it up at the same time like yeah it's yeah that's the way it was not the way fighters are not to say that he was wasn't an immensely talented person like an extremely a physical specimen you know what i mean yeah all right so those are the two big controversies of this film or three big controversies of this film that i think because yeah the violence against women is number three i would say yeah so i think we had to address those i mean but i I like to phrase it as violence against a a serial killer yeah that that also (laughs) that's how i'll phrase it violence against a murderer yeah so i guess i'm I'm gonna say fuck her up then (laughs) (laughs) she deserved it she kind of deserved her face getting bashed in i mean that third act man Oh my god. We ha- dude, we got to set this shit up. Holy crap. We Let's just get to it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I love about this film is the pacing is so great, especially the first hour, hour and a half. It's absolutely sensational and it doesn't let you go with entertainment factor and, and just humor and great writing and great character and just great f- filmmaking. It's the fucking editing, man. It really but like yeah. also it's a non-linear story with some flashbacks as well as infusing it with serials from TV shows as well as movie clips. So basically, I, I think one of my favorite parts of this film is the Bounty Law sequences. And opening the film with <clears throat> Bounty Law is so fun. It's so tongue-in-cheek. We get a, a quick characterization, not just of Cliff, but also of Rick. And and also, like, you're seeing the way they sit, Rick's in the front, Cliff's in the but back. But also, to open the movie with Leo as an outlaw on TV... It was just amazing. The balls of Tarantino yeah. to do like, that. What, who the fuck does 16 that? 16 millimeter. I mean, not even. Black and white. Black, yeah, black and white 16 mil. Oh, mil. my God. It's amazing. Who does that? Of a, of a campy, Of the most famous 1950s actor alive. Western TV, 1960s Western TV show. Only Tarantino can do that, man. And he, and he nails it. And then going into the story of Cliff and Rick and how they're best friends. And Rick is, like is I that explained what you, Is that how you describe it, Cliff? Carrying his load? Yeah, yeah that's yeah, about right. That's about right. <laughs> 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 I just remember the first time I saw that when we when we saw it in theaters, and I was I was the first fucking fifteen minutes of this movie I was smiling the whole time. Me too, dude. From the bounty law scene to them driving, I was smiling oh, for the first hour and a half oh my, I, when we I was, were at New Mev last it month. Was just am- last yeah, week. same. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, but the the filmmaking is just so smart and so Tarantino. Yeah, there's such similarities I think to the Hateful Eight and with this with the opening where. Hey, Filet, he opens with that super long take pulling out of sure. the crucifix in the snow. This film, when we get to uh, the linear story, the, the main storyline, he opens up with a close-up of Rick Dalton's poster in his driveway yeah. pulling out with the car. It's just like— And it opens with just like a close-up on his mouth, and then it pulls back to reveal, oh, it's a poster. Then, yeah. oh, wait, we're in a car. Oh, wait, we're strapped to the back of the car, and they get in. It's brilliant. It's no insane. one does stuff like that. It's Tarantino, but it means so much. It's all character. I will it's all say, production. And- I will say, I think that— the shots of driving that PTA got in Phantom Thread, I think Tarantino saw those and was like, I gotta fucking try and top that. Because <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the, yeah, shot, yeah. the driving shots in Phantom Thread. Paul Thomas Anderson strapped the camera to the back of the vintage car, driving through the fucking streets, driving through the the, hill, the hillside, through the, the forest-laden roads. Oh my fucking God. They are my, fi- my favorite driving shots I've ever seen in a movie before. And... He did it like he's the DP, which is amazing. I think, and because they're best, they're really good friends, but also they they have a, like a friendly rivalry where they're pushing each other based upon each movie. And I think I'm telling you, man, 
Tarantino saw Phantom Thread. Because when I saw Phantom Thread, I was like, holy fuck, that shot's insane. I guarantee you Tarantino's like, man, I haven't done that yet. I gotta try and top well, that. Well, don't you think that PTA saw Kill Bill Volume 2 and was like, oh, that's kind of what I'm looking for too with these driving scenes. Which ones? Beatrix driving the car. Who? Beatrix. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm like mama. There's you some can't mo- say Beatrix. Beatrix. <laughs> it's my brain, dude. No, no, no. Uh, From... Behind the car. Uh-huh. Driving. Oh no, he's got the camera strapped in the car. No, I know, yeah, but some of the but some of the Phantom Thread scenes are just like that. Oh shot yeah, yeah, but I'm talking about the, where you know what I'm talking where he's the, yeah, yeah, he yeah. has the camera. He he's he strapped into the back of the car on this rig that like went it was like a 45 degree angle sticking up behind the car and it gave it like this kind of like overhead shot of the car of the vehicle slightly above the vehicle looking down on the vehicle from behind. As it's driving. And I had never seen that shot before in my life. Yeah. And then Tarantino kind of did it a little bit in this film. And I think that he was like, oh my god, that's fucking brilliant. Yeah, well, I think the the cars and the driving are so important to this movie because you could argue that of all of his movies... Well, I mean, it, I mean, it's a callback to Pulp Fiction as well, too, and even Reservoir Dogs. Cars have always been important. It's oh, car yeah. Interiors, yeah. interiors, car scenes, because that's a part of life. We're all driving in cars all the time. We're passengers, passengers in cars all the time. We're just passengers. Almost in life, every bro. day of our life, we're inside a car. So it's so immer- it's such an immersive quality to a story that not every movie does it, or if they do it, they don't really emphasize it. They're kind of one-offing it. They're just trying to get in and out of a car as quickly as possible. But yeah, also it's a great callback to Tarantino. I mean, to uh, Scorsese movies. I mean, ca- Taxi Driver. We're in a car for a majority of that movie for many sequences. So I think that. It helps so much with the immersive quality of putting you in the world of being in a car because it's reality. Yeah, well, it's kind of just like how Sofia Coppola portrays people lying, sitting in bed so often in Lost in Translation because you spend a lot of time lying and sitting in bed. Third of our lives at least. And not just just sleeping, but just like sitting up in bed, you know what I mean? Um, Or just hanging out in bed. You spend so much time in your vehicle that Tarantino was like, you know what? We spend so many hours um, a year driving... It should be a strong part of the narrative of this film, especially, like I was saying earlier, living in L.A., where you drive so much to do anything. He, all of his movies, even if it's a period piece, The Hateful Eight, we're in a carriage for a half hour, basically, in the opening of that movie. I mean, uh, Django Unchained, we're in cars and horse-drawn carriages for that for a decent amount of time as well, and we have multiple sequences with carriages. He loves carriages. transportation. Transportation is a part of life. It always has been, and it's important to put in stories and Fusing it into your narrative storytelling, I think, is one of his great strengths that flies under the radar for storytelling. And, man, it's just like Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio just driving in a car. So fucking it's cool. So, so cool. cool. I remember looking at the behind-the-scenes photos when they were while they were filming, and I was like, oh, my God, what is this fucking movie? <laughs> I was like, what is this? I don't care what it is. I'm seeing it. But it's set up so well with this first scene, basically, with Rick and Cliff going to... Um, you so, and Frank Grill, and uh, obviously we have we're the getting great a res, flash. We're getting a res there they, soon. Yeah, they they meet Marvin Schwartz, Schwartz, played by Pacino, who is a special agent who helps get actors in Hollywood into international films and also specifically Italian films for Rick Dalton. To also, help. I, I would say Rick Dalton's storyline, real quick. It is. Um, it was also inspired by Clint Eastwood. Clint okay, Eastwood. Yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. Um, Tarantino, I Sergio read Leone, interviews. Yeah. Clint Eastwood went to Italy. Made a bunch of westerns with Sergio Leone and came back and became a huge fucking star. So yeah. I think so. Tarantino actually used that as a major inspiration for Rick as well. Absolutely, bro. Absolutely. So 
that's why he's meeting with Marvin is because he's basically asking this, this what this agent can do for him because he's trying to get his movie career going. It's not been going well. He was a very popular TV star on Bounty Law for a few years, but like I said, that's gone downhill. He basically ruined season three. They did not pick it up for a fourth season because I want some goddamn rinky-dink movie career because he's trying to be the next Steve McQueen. And he got full of himself. Now Marvin's going to try and help him get him out of this mess. But Marvin's also going to tell him how it is. Give him some tough love. Basically, all you've been doing is playing punching bag to every swinging dick on the network for every TV show. You're the heavy in everything you're doing every time you're guesting on a yeah, show. Yeah, I'm the heavy. So are you getting your ass kicked at the end of the episode? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the heavy. Of course, I'm the heavy. <laughs> he's also got a stutter, which yeah, is great. Yeah, he's a very nervous guy. It's a great little uh, little active little characteristic that uh leo gave the character and um marvin's telling him telling him it's straight so what we're going to do is get you to italy to start in westerns like do you keep being the punching bag to every swinging dick in for the networks in hollywood until your career is over or do you go to italy and start in westerns and start winning fucking fights Start winning (laughs) he's got a great point um and it absolutely is true because you see it still to this day where the audience has a psychological reaction to actors if they get typecast in a certain kind of role, but also if they play the victim or if they play like a despicable kind of person. You know, you, it still happens to this day of people getting typecast as a certain thing. And if you're a lead actor, a good thing to get typecast as is the hero. Absolutely. That's just always going to help. And this obviously puts Rick into a spiral because this is something he's probably – Maybe no one's been happening, but not fully realized it, which is bleeding into his alcoholism, his his failures, his depression, his insecurities. He breaks down that parking lot with with Cliff. <laughs> Don't cry in front of the Mexicans. <laughs> he's like, he's I'm like, has been. He's like, my career's over. I gotta go to Italy and star in goddamn spaghetti westerns. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great setup, and this is the character. This is the plot of the movie. Really, is Rick Dalton. Not only trying to kind of find the next phase of his career, but also finding that journey with his best friend and stuntman, Cliff Booth. But also, Cliff is already out, basically. Yeah. His his stunt career is pretty much done. I'm, I haven't stunted in a while now. Yeah, I'm, he, I'm your gopher. Yeah. I, I like driving you around places and I doing like things around the house. fixing your stuff and staying in the hallway. He is. Bas- your way. He's basically Rick's assistant. You know what I mean? So he's not, he's, he's already a washed up has-been. And that's, I think that's a really in, in, interesting facet to the film where um, the two leads are kind of washed up until I think I think that Rick, by the end of the film, gains a new sense of confidence and has a brighter future, although it's uncertain. It's an uncertain future, but there is a potential for a future, and that's where you know the Clint Eastwood background ties in where it wasn't until after he returned from Italy and had made those westerns, then he did Dirty Harry and became the fucking superstar. Dirty Harry's really the big thing that blew him up even though like good and bad the ugly was so respected but dirty harry was really it um and so when i when i watched this movie after the ending i imagine Cliff, uh, rick dalton getting a big role after this and it might be a role in a polanski movie or something but i imagine rick getting a huge movie star role that catapults him into superstardom but the movie essentially is about two washed up men who enjoyed full like good careers in Hollywood for many years, but now they're on their way out and it's about them trying to deal with that. Cliff has accepted it. You know, Cliff is a very, there's such different guys. Obviously we mentioned Rick is so insecure. He's very emotional. He can't control his emotions as well. Um, And he's very self-conscious. 
Whereas Rick, I mean Cliff, very controlled, um, very even tempered. Um, he's he accepts things as the way they are. You know what? He's not a stunt man anymore. But you know what? He's happy to just keep driving his buddy around as a job. It's not the most respectable line of work, but it's better than nothing. And yeah, he lives in a trailer, but at least he's got a cool dog named Brandy. <laughs> um, I love Brandy. Yeah, in this Brandy's movie. great. And he's, his life's not great, but like you know, he's fine with it. You know what I mean? I think it's enough for him. It's, it is enough. He doesn't need much because you can tell he's seen some fucking shit. Yeah. He's done some shit. He's just happy to be included. He knows he's he's there's a ceiling that Cliff has in his life in his career. He hadn't even come close to it. You know, he was a stuntman. That's it. Stunt. He was never gonna be a star. Never yeah. was. No, he didn't, he's not an actor. He's just yeah. a stuntman. Not. I mean, we love stunt people, and hopefully, I heard recently that the Oscars might start including a stunt category. They better. In the Academy Awards, either next year or the following. If they year. do next year, obviously Tom Cruise will win. <laughs> <laughs> His team. I think it'd be a, a team category. It's got to be a team category, yeah. But I mean, these two characters—they need each other so much. Cliff needs Rick, and Rick needs Cliff. Rick needs Cliff's cool-headedness and his confidence to get him out of these bouts of uh, neurosis and depression. There, you and feeling insecurity. better? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's fucking Polanski. And then fucking uh, honest director at Hollywood. Probably the whole world lives right next door to me. You know who that was? <laughs> Roman fucking Polanski, director of Rosemary's Baby, is my next door neighbor. It's the first time I see him. He's lived here a whole month. I'm one pool party away from starring in the next Polanski movie. You feeling Feel better? Me. Oh yeah, sorry about that. I love this movie. Um, <laughs> it's but, so quotable. But Cliff also needs Rick, because Cliff needs a friend in his life. You could tell. No, everyone in Hollywood's basically turned their back on him because of the rumors of him probably killing his wife. <laughs> you want to talk about that <laughs> in a sec? But he needs Rick because Rick keeps him going and keeps him alive. And Hollywood basically gets him on sets, which is something he probably still loves to do: is be on set, the opportunity, potential, potentially to be stunting, but also. Just being around Rick, he, he still is alerted by Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. And they're best friends. But, I mean, he, like, you want to watch uh, FBI? <laughs> I brought beer, and I thought we were, I already thought we were going <laughs> to. Got a six-pack. Oh, here come, here come. <laughs> they're pals, you know? I love, I love the FBI scene because Tarantino writes real people. Yeah. The dialogue's real. They're just sitting there like— God's oh, a fucking asshole. The guy's a, the guy's a fucking prick. <laughs> the guy's a fucking prick. <laughs> And um, this, this uh, Johnny something, good guy, good guy. We're gonna shoot this uh, PCH Pacific Coast Highway, yeah, Malibu. Yeah, some some fucking place, <laughs> some fucking place. <laughs> it's just like how you talk when you're with your pals watching a movie. Cliff's like, oh, I love that. That's a great shot right there. Great jump, <laughs> smooth jump, smooth jump. Yeah, thanks, thanks. All <laughs> <laughs> right, in the guys face. Are, guys are fucking prick. That's how people talk. Yeah, it's so authentic and real, and it's that's why it feels so great. It's awesome. I love to watch it. It's like I mean, we grew up, you know. As teenagers, like, our favorite thing to do with our friends is we would go over someone's house and we'd watch a couple of movies. And we'd just, like, shoot the shit the whole time. Eat a bunch of fruit roll-ups, then watch movies. Well, I'm, I'm talking about high school. We'd do something different from eating fruit oh, roll-ups. Well, we'd also play Halo, <laughs> Stone Out of Our Minds. Stone Out of Our Minds, <laughs> watch a movie, Stone. Our friend had an Xbox. We weren't that, uh, yeah. we weren't caking it that much yet. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> but we were definitely stoned and watching movies and, and just, like, shooting the shit, watching, like, Step Brothers and stuff. It was great. Um... <laughs> There's so many cigarettes smoked in this movie. I love it. You know, and, I always and talk all the about weed, it. All the weed smoked and, man, I miss. You I, know how I, I always it. bring up the aesthetic of cigarettes yeah. is terrific for film and cinema and television and a lot of modern studios and modern films and directors they don't want it in their movies anymore because they think it's bad to portray. Obviously, cigarettes bad. Smoking's bad for you. It'll kill you. It's bad, okay. But also, Smoke, it looks smoking's bad. Fucking great on camera. And these everyone in this film is 
fucking chain Plus smoking it's the, cigarettes. Plus, it's fucking 1969. Everyone Everyone's chain smoking cigarettes. Everybody was smoking. Everyone was. So, but I, it looks great in um, uh, just the way that both – just these two characters smoke. Um, Rick is, like, very, like, controlled, and his, he's kind of just, like, very, like – I don't know. It's just, like, all over the place, and then Rick is just much more relaxed. Oh, Cliff, you mean. Cliff, yeah. Cliff. No, 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 Rick, when he smokes, he's just, like, You jerky. said Rick, then Rick. So, I'm sorry. Yeah. Rick is, like, jerky and just, like – yeah, yeah. And then, like, he just throws the cigarettes away, and it's just like he really just like gets into that when he when he rips <laughs> he's on it. He's always stressed out. Yeah, but then Ricky's just chilling. He's just like, yeah, whatever. He's just like lounging. He's got his arm hanging. It's just the both actors. I mean, the thing is with acting, um, because even though I'm not an actor and I'm not interested in ever becoming an actor, I have such a huge amount of respect for actors, and I've watched fucking every like I've been watching interviews of with actors since i was a teenager i've just always been fascinated by them that's that was honestly like something we'd always discuss yeah like, before we even had the podcast for the last decades we'd be like yeah hey man check out this interview with tom exactly. cruise yeah. for mission impossible 4 <laughs> <laughs> um and and so i've always been fascinated by good actors because what's different about good actors is they make you forget that they're acting you know what i mean whereas you there's actors that are pretty good mid-tier and they're like they're they're you, they're noticeable, but when especially when they're acting with a good actor, exactly, dude. When they're acting with a great actor, it's it's fucking noticeable who the real fucking artist is. But when you watch actors like Brad and Leo and Margo as well, but just because she's not sharing scenes with them, I'm just gonna talk about them. But Margo is uh, also one of the greatest talents right now. But so, for example, Leo and and Brad, their behaviors and everything they're doing. The thing is, they're so good that it looks like they're not really trying. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it looks like they're just, like, showing up on set, blah, blah, blah. But every single movement, every kind of physical attribute they give their actors, it's all controlled and by design, especially if they're working with Tarantino. That's what makes them great. That's particularly what makes Leo so great. Um, He's a great actor, but he's also an unbelievably extraordinary physical actor. Obviously, he won for The Revenant. He won his Oscar. Because that's probably, in my opinion, the the Revenant might be the greatest acting, the greatest physical acting ever. Just seeing him, his portrayal of pain, yeah. of suffering, of it's a, yeah, it's dragging himself across the dirt, like believing it. You know what I mean? Daniel Day with uh, my left foot is that's is, also yeah, but yeah. I'm talking about pain and it's just like pain suffering, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> the grueling yeah. nature of the role. Leo is an extraordinary physical actor, but there's physical acting like that, but then there's physical acting like. Very minimal like this, where just the way they carry themselves, the way that they walk, um, the way that they smoke a cigarette. It's so controlled and detailed, and they're so good at it that you forget that they're, like, acting in a way, you know Leo's what I mean? Leo's eyebrows in this movie. Yeah. Leo changes, like, obviously this, it's, it's a Leo. different from any role he's ever this done. This might be his most underrated performance, even though he got an Oscar nomination, of course, but no one really, when they talk about Leo's best performances, I feel like no one ever brings this up, but he's doing so much. Yeah. Both are, but I think Leo, this might be my favorite role It's of one his. of his best performances. It's up there with yeah. Django, like, in terms of what he's doing on screen. Obviously, The Revenant, for It's because sure. it's not as extreme as Calvin Candy. Yeah, yeah, the Calvin Candy role is so, it is so like, loud it's and It's more Oscar-based, yeah. yeah. But this this role, it's so, it's so terrific, and 
it's one of my favorite of his entire career, but just just watch his eyebrows when you watch this movie. He's like doing these things with his eyebrows that like the way he sits You can drink, see the panic in his fucking mind. He's incredible yeah. in this movie. He really is because Rick Dalton. But then he's silly. Like when he's when he's playing the margaritas, yeah. he's, he's just like dancing <laughs> in the People kitchen. People forget how funny he is, man. Oh my God. Wolf of Wall Street and this movie are hysterical because of Leo and obviously John Hill and Wolf of Wall Street. But like Leo is so funny in this movie and. He cracks me up for an hour straight in this movie. I can't stop Pepe, laughing. Pepe, fetch your daughter with that violin. No, that, that. no, senor. <laughs> don't hurt her again. Uh, uh, Spanish, Spanish, Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got I ain't gonna hurt her. I just want her to play the fiddle. <laughs> I love that. Rick Dalton's <laughs> such a great character. He's so funny because Cliff's like, he's like, you need me to stay around or anything? He's like, no, I got a I got a bunch of lines to remember tomorrow. He starts making fucking whiskey sours. <laughs> has eight whiskey sours in the pool, floating around. He's, he's got. He puts it all in that giant tin. Like fucking, what do you I like want that a, cup? Yeah, whatever that is, it's gigantic. What it, is that? What would you call? It's that? like a giant carafe. Yeah, <laughs> it's like what's this called? Um, tumbler. Not a tumbler. There's a special tankard. Word. Tankard. It's kind of like a tankard. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a tankard would be yeah, the right tankard, word with yeah. the cover. Yeah. But but Rick Dalton's a mess because you could you could argue that Rick Dalton's a talented actor and he had his shot in the past and he if he used it correctly and used his. His uh, popularity with Bounty Law, he could have had a movie career more successful. If he wasn't he, such a dr- if, fucking drunk. Yeah, if he wasn't a drunk, he wasn't arrogant as hell. And selfish, and, yeah. And ruined season three and made sure that season four didn't happen for Bounty Law. Who knows what his career would have looked like going forward. But you can argue he's a talented actor. He's not the smartest guy. <laughs> he's not the most charismatic guy on the block. But he can act for sure in the right kinds of roles and with the right opportunities and the right mindsets. Because he's effective every time, and and even when he's gets his lines right after his hissy fit inside the trailer, he fucking nails that scene yeah, where he throws yeah. the girl on the ground and everything. Um, even though he's getting praised from an eight year old, and that's the biggest moment of his life. Like it's the best acting I've ever seen in my Give entire me life. Evil Hamlet. <laughs> yeah, evil, evil Hamlet. Hamlet. <laughs> Sexy Hamlet. <laughs> but you can argue he's a he's a talented actor. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just hasn't hit it in movies yet, and he's got an opportunity if he goes to Italy. Stars in these spaghetti westerns could come back a star eventually if he lands the right role. So he he's talented. He just has messed everything up up to this point, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And, but like, because he's going to learn his lines the night before the shoot, drinking eight whiskey sours <laughs> <laughs> while floating in his pool. But I, I love but, I love the tape he plays back. Oh that my he re- god! It's, it's his voice where he records Girl, all the lines. Your, please don't hurt her. <laughs> I ain't gonna hurt her. I just want her to play the fiddle. <laughs> Oh my god, it's so funny. <laughs> you knew your lines last night, but you had eight goddamn whiskey sours. You couldn't stop at three or four. You had to have eight goddamn whiskey sours, and you're embarrassing yourself for all these people. Yeah, because he, he did do the work, you know? He knew the lines. He like, knew the he, lines. He, he did a tape recorder of every line. He, like, he, he knew he the lines. He knew the lines. He's like, he, they were so easy to him. He's like, yeah, hey, bring your dart down here. Play the fiddle for me sometime. Like, he's cruising through them. But eight whiskey sours, he's hung over his fuck. And I, he gets out of the car. He's fucking hawking loogies left and right. <laughs> he's got dude, his face in a bucket of oh ice. Oh my god, dude. I was I was dying in the theater the other night because after Cliff drops him off at the set, and uh he, he <laughs> And then Cliff goes, Hey, don't forget, you're Rick fucking Dalton. He does like the guns. But like he, him walking across that, he's just, he can't even walk straight. <laughs> he's like walking all over the place. He's hawking loogies. He looks like a fucking disaster. <laughs> it's so fucking goddamn funny. And then when the director comes out to talk to him about his scene in the in the makeup room, 
He just like keeps coughing. There's one point where he has like a coughing fit. <laughs> His face is in ice yeah. too. But he looks horrible. It's so f- I I I could I find it so funny and I was just like giggling like a little schoolgirl the whole fucking time. I love that scene because that director is like, I wanna like give you like a lot of hair and I wanna give you a mustache. And he's like, You want me to look like a goddamn hippie? You wanna make me look like a hippie? <laughs> <laughs> Rick fucking hates hippies. But <laughs> you goddamn fucking hippies. I think everybody hated hippies back then. <laughs> but the scene it's so funny and <laughs> I want you to be Caleb. <laughs> how's uh, how's anyone supposed to know it's me? I don't I don't I don't want anyone to know it's you. You're better than that. <laughs> You're not just a cow TV cowboy, Rick. You're better than that. I paid you to be an actor. <laughs> My God. But he's got an opportunity. That's the thing with Rick. He's got opportunities, and if it works out with Marvin, if it works out in, in Italy with uh, Carbuccio, the, I think that's the name of the Italian. I think just Carbucci. Carbucci, the director yeah. in Italy, then he could be a star, but it's, it's something that he's working towards, and he doesn't want to do it. He thinks spaghetti westerns are shit. And then Cliff's like, how many have you seen? Like, one or two. I've seen enough. You right? seen any. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go to Italy and st- star in goddamn spaghetti westerns. Going to Italy and star in westerns doesn't sound like that bad a deal to me. Exactly, because that's why they need each other. Yeah. They balance each other out, which is why they work so well together. Yeah, and then, um, but it, the pacing of the movie is great, because right now, after the opening act, we're cutting, we're doing the triptych. We're doing, like, the Nolan triptych, basically. Basically, yeah. We're doing Rick on set, then we're doing Cliff where he goes to Rick's house, and then when he also picks up uh, Pussycat and then goes to Spawn Ranch, and then we're also cutting to Sharon Tate when she goes to buy the book and goes to the theater and also picks up the hitchhiker. Um, and it's a challenge because the thing is, the, Cliff's Spawn Ranch is a very long sequence, and then Cliff's few scenes is a very long sequence, so... It's a challenge with the editing to make it feel balanced and make it feel like you're not spending too much time with one character to make the other two feel left out. And, and real quick, also, because the, this whole majority of the film right here, it really takes place over two or three days. Exactly, yeah. Until they go to Italy and come yeah, back. Yeah, exactly. So I thought it was just a wonderful balance. Um, and Raskin, the editor, and Tarantino found uh, a really wonderful cut of the film that flows so well. And we do a wonderful balancing of characters and then... Essentially, the sequence will end on the spot, the end of the Spawn Ranch, and he picks up Rick, and then basically we'll cut to the six months later. Um, but all of the bulk of the film is this day in, in the life of these three people, and it's just really masterfully done. Yeah, I think that they, they're all really interesting and really fun and interesting in their own ways. Cliffs is terrific going to Spawn Ranch, and obviously he's driven past Pussycat a few times. They've seen each other. waved at They waved at each other once when the Manson family girls were getting... The food from the dumpsters, and she found those really nice pickles. And then he sees her again, but he is going in the opposite direction, so she can't give he can't give her a ride. And then eventually, they do link up a third time where he's going in her direction, gives her a ride to Spawn Ranch, where he used to shoot westerns because he's an old cowboy star. And then Cliff on the set of Lancer. Rick. I mean, yeah, Rick on the set of Lancer and filming Lancer is so incredible because... Obviously, Tarantino loves Westerns so much, and this movie is very much a Western in so many respects. Having the opportunity to shoot a 1960s serial Western as well as basically a 1969 Western in a lot of ways in in L.A. and Hollywood. But fusing both the -the behind-the-scenes filmmaking of a Hollywood set with Rick showing up to set, getting his makeup done, and 
hungover hockey movies <laughs> in front of Trudy. The Trudy scene, oh my God. But that scene's terrific. It's yeah. really great. And that was based off Jodie Foster and how precocious and talented she was at such a young age. And Trudy's obsessed with acting in Walt Disney. She's reading that book on Walt Disney. She's reading a giant biography on Walt Disney. He's fascinating. He was a genius. And Rick's reading that book about, what's it, like Creasy? Cal- uh, the cow easy breezy easy breezy yeah. who was a bronco a bronco breaker who would break horses in and it's basically a metaphor for who he is he's like this is not what he used to be he used to be the best but you know he's got a back injury he kind of <laughs> walks with a limp and you know he, no one really cares about him anymore <laughs> that's <laughs> okay easy breezy <laughs> and he breaks down because he realizes that's his life it's all right pumpkin puss it's, it's gonna it's gonna be you in 15 years what's Fif- that in 15 years you'll know what i'm talking about <laughs> but then i love when you know timothy oliphant comes because rick is is guesting as a heavy on this episode of this pilot for lancer and james stacy series and he plays james stacy the, the actor mm-hmm. and fusing both behind the scenes and getting ready for the scene and then entering Quentin Tarantino's vision and filming of if he was shooting this Western reel, but then very meta taking us behind the camera POV basically of the camera move. All right, we have to reset the shot. Let's bring the camera backwards. Let's track it back and do the setup over again with the, everyone behind us. It's, it's really interesting. You don't really see filmmaking like that before where it's very meta. It's a movie inside of a movie inside of a movie. It's awesome. Well, something that people don't really talk about with Tarantino is he is a really big lover of magic realism. I would call this an instance of magic realism. He's actually done magic realism throughout his entire career, all the way from Reservoir Dogs. So Tim Roth's story, think about it. We get the story, Tim Roth's just reading the story to us, but then we see the imagination we see the actual story in his mind. You know oh, what I mean? Oh, in the in the bathroom, in with the bathroom the police. with the cops and the dogs barking. That's that's magic realism right there. You know, Tarantino has always been a big fan of it. I gotta I gotta make a list of all the magic realism he uses in his films. But like Beatrix Kittle sitting in the classroom as an adult in like the first grade classroom. Beatrix Kittle raises her here here. Like that that's magic realism. Um, and Tarantino has actually used it so often in his career. That I think people, it might fly under the radar because um, it's not like as in your face as like a Wes Anderson uh, magic realism where it's like constant throughout a film. But he absolutely uses it beautifully um, in so many instances. I'm actually, I'll make a a cool TikTok club about it. That'd be really cool, man. I think everyone would be excited to see that. (laughs) 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 But yeah, that's that's a form of magic realism, I would say, where... Like the the next where it cuts from Cliff or Sharon to the actual scene in Lancer, and it's like we're watching the scene already edited and scored, and then we cut to the saloon, and then it cuts to the oh, there's a camera, they're actually filming, and we gotta reset the camera, and the camera actually resets. Line, line, <laughs> line. <laughs> Woo! I'm an outlaw. You're an outlaw, Rick. Woo! <laughs> I love when he's like, can we just start over? Can we just take it from the top? Just Please. go with it. Just say the line. Just go. Just go. <laughs> oh, I'm fucking it up. <laughs> it's so funny. You embarrass yourself for all those people. That's it. You're going to quit drinking right now. <laughs> it takes a swig from the fucking flask. But I love, like, right when he opens the... Right when he walks into the trailer, he fucking throws something against the glass mirror and shatters it. You're a goddamn it. alcoholic. <laughs> Eight goddamn whiskey sours. <laughs> couldn't have, couldn't have three or four. You had to have eight. <laughs> you knew your lines yesterday, but now everyone thinks you didn't try your lines. <laughs> <at all>. <laughs> <laughs> the thing with Rick, though, 
he also doesn't realize how well known he is and how well how yeah, famous yeah. he is because Jay Sabre, Jay Sebring, Sharon Tate, and obviously Roman Polanski you know who the fuck. And Jay, Tex. Yeah, and Tex. They all, everyone knows who Rick Dalton is. They know who Jay Cahill is. Bounty Law was a very successful show. You can assume that Jay Sebring, Sharon Tate, and Roman Polanski probably watched the show. And Jay Sebring even mentions it at the end of the film when they're talking outside the gate in their driveway. He says, I always tease Sharon that she lives next door to Jay Cahill. And if anyone ever needs him, there's like they can get a bounty on her. Yeah. So like Jay Sebring joked that, oh, we all know who you are. We know we we love you. We is love that you. Jay Cahill. Jay Cahill. Um, yeah, uh, yes, yeah, sure. Yes, yeah, Sharon. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> is everyone okay? So he doesn't understand like the opportunity he still he's, has. He doesn't understand that he's doing well. He's, he has done well. He's doing yeah. well. He, he don't, I fucking live here, man. I fucking live. I'm not just passing through. I live here. But also, Roman Polanski knows who the fuck he is. Sharon mm-hmm. Tate knows who the fuck he is. So he's not as down and out on his luck as he thinks he is. He's just... He's not such a failure. He doesn't understand it yet until that moment, I think, where I think he's surprised that Jay Sabring and Sharon Tate know who Jake Cahill is. I think he's shocked. Yeah, absolutely. And also on the sets, everybody's happy to have him there. You know, James Stacey's happy. He's like, happy to have you on for the first episode. Like, it's the pilot. It's a big deal. Got a real pro like you. Yeah, exactly. You get a real pro. And also, like, James... James reveals that people people talk and rumors have been spread about um, Rick possibly being up for Great Escape. So oh, he does a jump cut here yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. So like the fact that people in the industry have been like, "Oh, I heard that Rick Dalton was up for the Great Escape." Like he is like really well respected and well talked about. He just hasn't hit it yet. Yeah, he hasn't exactly. Hit it in film yet in movies, which is what he's trying to do. What was the uh, jump cut you wanted to say? There's a jump cut in that scene too. That's what it was. So you were talking about the jump cut in the trailer, which sure. Tarantino is the never really does they he does it here when james is talking to rick before they start filming like it's great to have a pro like you yeah you're they on the a, bench yeah yeah you're right a, they do a jump cut yeah. there as well i think they were like fuck it whatever why not whatever i i saw this great uh elephant interview elephant elephant i thought you said elephant <laughs> <laughs> well look sam it's an elephant <laughs> no look frodo it's an elephant they won't believe it back home doesn't think all elephants in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but uh, I saw this Oliphant interview where he was saying that, like, um, it was actually Brad Pitt was so much like how his character was written on the page because Oliphant, he said he, he uh, showed up to the first table reading and he showed up in his Tesla and then he, pu- he parked and he saw Brad Pitt ride up in a chopper looking so fucking badass. And then just standing out, and he's just like, man, I feel like like a bozo. Like, I'm supposed <laughs> to be the guy on a chopper because his character drives a chopper in the, yeah. in the movie. He said, like, Brad Pitt's, like, the real deal kind of chopper. Brad Pitt's a huge motorcycle enthusiast, and he owns a bunch of motorcycles, and he's actually driven motorcycles on, like, long-distance trips all over the world. It's He's, like, a, a huge lover of motorcycles. Yeah. And also going to Sharon Tate on what she's doing on this day she is going to get a really nice book for her husband, Roman Polanski, as well as sees that her film, The Wrecking Crew, is playing across the street at the Bruin Theater. We saw the trailer for this before the movie, The yeah, Wrecking Crew. It's, it's so fucking funny. ridiculous. Yeah, it looks ridiculous. With uh, Dean Martin. They do a great intro like he's pretending to be wasted. Was he really or was he's, he pretending? He's pretending okay. because then they cut to him and he's normal. So it's, it's pretty funny. It so was fun. He did a good job playing drunk. But like old movie trailers were were. Creative production. Creative. So the trailers were long, but also they opened it with like an intro with the actors of the trailer, and then they introduced the trailer, which is cool. There was also a Rosemary's Baby trailer, 
And it was fucking amazing. It looked incredible. It was amazing. I don't think anyone knew what it was until... Dude, the first shot, we both clapped. We were like, I was like, woo! And then nobody in the theater reacted. Because like, it's a shot of them when they're eating alone. They're they the just apartment. purchased the apartment, yeah. yeah. And we knew what it was. But, I mean, we love Rosemary's I think people baby. needed like a minute into the footage to know what it was. Yeah, maybe, possibly. But it was so cool because whenever they play a movie at the New Bev, they, they somehow relate the movie trailers to the movie, whether it's from the director or filmmaker or the actor that's starring in it or... Obviously, meta references like in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So we got a trailer for CC and Company, the Joe Namath <laughs> film, as well as Rosemary's Baby. And also the trailer for the Chattanooga beer commercial. In The Wrecking Crew. In The Wrecking Crew, which was super fun. Now, what was I, what was I just about to talk about? Um, Sharon Tate in The Wrecking Crew. So Sharon Crew. Tate, she's going to see her movie. It's a really sweet and touching scene. I mean, if you were a movie star and like you were – She's pretty new to being like a big name in Hollywood, and this is one of her biggest roles to date up until that point. I would, if I was in her position, I'd be like, "Fuck yeah, I'm gonna go check this movie." This out. is pre-smartphone and internet. Yeah, this is really yeah. exciting like, stuff. This, it's and not like you can just like pull up your computer and watch yourself. It's really authentic, and it's yeah. real. It's based off Tarantino and a real story of him when he went to a theater that was playing Reservoir Dogs, and a bunch of people recognized Aww. him. And the people working at the theater were like, "Who are you? Who are you?" He's like. I made the movie. Like I'm, uh-huh. I, I'm the director of Reservoir Dogs. And like, oh my god, we gotta get a so photo. So cute. So it's actually based off Tarantino and experience he had with Reservoir Dogs. And I remember seeing people online saying like that's such an unrealistic scene. It's based on a real story. And it's really cool to see. Like if I was a movie star, I would fuck. If I was in a movie, I would absolutely go see it in a theater. 100%. We know you would, man. Absolutely, <laughs> just to experience it. <laughs> I'd be there like every fucking night. <laughs> we all know you. We all know that. every night. There I am. Here comes hey, my. Hey, this is me. Here comes my. You scene. would greet everybody in front of the door. Forty. This is my movie, everyone. Twenty-year 20 anniversary. I'm washed up. It's the only movie I've ever been in. I'm like I'm Philip Seymour Hoffman in Along Came Polly. <laughs> hey, you're the guy from Alligator. Uh, I am. I am. <laughs> Was it Crocodile or something? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am. I am. <laughs> I love her in the business meeting where he does this whole pitch and they're like, were you the kid from Blah, Blah, Blah? Cro- Crocodile like, or something? I am. <laughs> I am, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard you speak before. <laughs> but, like, it's it's really touching because I think I'm sure a lot of people have done that who are actors to, like, kind of incognito go see a movie that you're in in theaters. Yeah, just they to do that all the time. That. Yeah. And I, I think it's really incredible. And to see, you know, watch Sharon Tate, watch Sharon Tate's movie. And then to see the real Sharon Tate in the real movie, like a four minutes of the movie is like pretty much shown, I feel yeah. like. And it, it really gives you a – I think it's important for the for the audience and Tarantino put in there on purpose that much of the movie of Sharon Tate to give us a real sense of who she was, how charismatic she was, how funny she was, how personable she was outside of just Margot Robbie's terrific performance. But to see – the real Sharon Tate, because I'm sure most people watching this movie have never seen that movie before, or many Sharon Tate movies in general. Yeah, and I mean, Margot really is like a great, great match for Sharon Tate. Um, it's also a beautiful theater. That theater is stunning. Um, we I saw be- yeah. um, Licorice Pizza there. Yeah, we saw Licorice Pizza there. It's a really fantastic theater. It's fucking massive. You it's wouldn't in Westwood. Th- yeah, you wouldn't think it walking in, but it's it seats like fucking 400 seats there's so many seats in that theater it's fantastic um i actually really want to go back there again because they got a huge screen they play a lot of film there like actual film we saw mm-hmm. a 35 millimeter licorice pizza no 70 millimeter licorice pizza 70 there. millimeter yeah yeah um but yeah it's, it's a wonderful theater and i'm sure tarantino has seen a lot of movies there which is why he threw it in this film and also because it was still operating in that era uh, but I, I do think that I'll, I'll be honest with you the first time i saw this movie i wasn't sure about this scene 
And I did was I, I kind of was like, I mean, that, I mean, it was a cute scene, but I don't know. You think it like slows it down a little bit or what? Slows it down, and I thought it was irrelevant. But that was just the first time I saw it, and on repeat viewings, I always, I've always thought that it was just fantastic. And then, again, seeing it again the other day solidified my thing, my thinking of it being actually necessary to the film, to understanding what was actually lost in real life, and how this this life was taken. So I, I will admit, when I first saw the movie, I thought that was a weak part of the film, Sharon Tate's entire double scene here at the bookstore and then at the theater. Yeah, I understand that perspective because this movie is like so entertaining up until that point is like kind of like a let's slow it down a little bit, yeah. you know, she, and then she also picks up the hi- the hitchhiker and everything too. Mm-hmm. That's part of that as well. And they, he added more of that footage in like we talked about earlier. And I will say the first time I saw this movie, obviously it's a Tarantino movie and I loved it, but I didn't love it as much as I do now because every time I've watched this movie, and maybe it's the only Tarantino movie that's like this that... I love it like ten, like twice as much as I saw at the time before, and I kind of want to watch it again, like tonight, like before I go to bed. I might put on Once Upon a Time <laughs> in Hollywood because I just I'm getting I'm falling in love with this movie so much every time I see it. And of course, like I felt that with Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill and Glorious Bastards, but this movie in particular, there's something about it. It's it's got this really magical quality to it for me, where I'm just so drawn to it, and I'm enticed to watch it more and more. The rewatchability for this movie. I think it's, it's highly, re- highly rewatchable. For his filmography, it's still highly it rewatchable. It gets more rewatchable yeah. every time. It's 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 really rare for a film to do that. But every time I see this movie, I'm thinking about it. I'm listening to the soundtrack for weeks. And I'm like, I got to watch it again. I got to watch it ASAP. And I, I'm probably going to watch it this week. Yeah, and there are a lot of great facets to the film. And obviously, Spawn Ranch is one of the highlights. And it's a wonderful like 25-minute sequence. And it elicits a great amount of fear, and it's kind of like a horror scene in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a great suspense build, too. Oh, absolutely. And it's really just the it, the suspense is built from, from just the patience of Tarantino and understanding that you don't have to rush the scene. Uh, you can have this slow build. I mean, how long is it from when he arrives at Spawn Ranch until he's actually walking through George Spawn's hallway? It's got to be like five minutes. Maybe, honestly, maybe longer. Um, and it's just wonderful. And... He does a remarkable job of portraying the Manson family girls and the couple of the guys as, you know, the kind, there's something just not right about them. And Cliff being the confident and go-getter that he is, he's not afraid to beat around the bush and he's not afraid to assert himself, especially when he thinks that someone he knows is in danger. Like he thinks that George is in danger and that's the motivation for his entire action in the sequence to, to make sure that George isn't like fucking dead. But I love it because Tarantino paints it as if the girls are lying about where George is. Can I talk to George? This is his nap time. George is um he's he's taking a nap right now, and it seems like such a bullshit answer from um, Pussycat, but it's actually the truth because this is his nap time. But it sounds ridiculous at first, but then Cliff finds out very quickly that it actually. Uh, George is this is his nap time, and and, Pussy, and Squeaky fucked his brains out Squeaky? earlier. Squeaky, squeaky, loves me. <laughs> he might, you might need to shake and wake him up. I fucked his brains out last night. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think what builds the suspense so well with the patient filmmaking, like you said, but the intense detail in addition to the mystery, because you know when Cliff gets there, it's kind of like when you kick over a rock in like the woods, and at first when you look at like this boulder or something, there's nothing around. It's just a boulder and some dirt whatever then you kick it up and then a bunch of insects are out from under it it's kind of like you look around spawn ranch it looks abandoned 
and there's nothing anywhere. But then all these fucking goddamn fucking hippies, hippies, bunch of Manson family hippies start coming out of like the crevices and like these abandoned buildings. And inside the van, that guy coming out with the girl, he's buttoning up his pants, meaning that they were just having sex inside that bus probably. And everything's filthy and disgusting, like very kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, the stuff in the kitchen around the house. I know that's one of his favorite. The rat movies. in the trap. So I feel, yeah. yeah, I feel like he was referencing Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the, the filth and this and this disgusting stuff around the kitchen and living room. Yeah. But the mystery of like, what? Who are these people? They keep coming. Like, how many are there? They're coming out everywhere. And then, yeah, like just kind of just like being coy with the audience and like not letting them in on what's really going on. And actually, what's going on is George in real life was a real person who owned Spawn Ranch and let the Charles Manson family live there for years. And he really was a real guy. And this really happened. And uh, Dakota Fanning's great. She's so funny in this movie. Um, because there's this huge fucking monologue that she says so quickly, talking about how, like... All about TV, right? Yeah, about TV, how, like, they like to watch these shows, but George always falls asleep, so I make him take his nap time now so that I don't miss any of the... Any, so any we have of my to watch George FBI tonight. And I, for my George nap time, my George TV time. It's, like, <laughs> fucking ridiculous. Um, and then you're like, shit, she really fucking... I think this is this is not rehearsed at all. Like, this is legit. And then, because um, she's so cool about... She she's like whatever go see him go talk to him, and uh, it, when Cliff comes inside the house and she's already sitting back in the chair watching TV, her her calmness about it even puts us more in in anxiety puts more anxiety on us because we're like oh shit is she like coaxing him into a trap baiting him into a trap by yeah. like being so cool and collected of like points at the hallway with her toe, and also says like. You might have to shake him awake. I fucked his brains out last night. So I just love that. I love that line. It's so funny. Because the first time I saw this movie, I thought that he was going to get attacked. I think everybody did. Everybody did. But also, there's a really cool song that plays while Cliff is walking through the hallway. And it's actually a Bernard Herrmann track from an Alfred Hitchcock movie that she's watching on TV. It's great. Scary suspenseful theme of music and it's playing on the TV in the background while Cliff is walking through the hallway until he finally opens the door and I thought it was just brilliant do you know what movie it's from yeah it's I wrote it down one sec yeah figure that out because we would I think we're all waiting on bated breath to find out which Hitchcock movie it's from <laughs> squeaky 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 loves squeaky. me she loves me I love how he's like uh, he references squeaky's red hair he's like it's you're acting like I didn't just tell you that I'm blind <laughs> Hold on, I didn't you, copy you, me. You touched me. You came to see how I'm doing. I appreciate that. <laughs> you, you, you can keep going, man. Keep, you keep Googling it. Um, let's talk. You, to, you can talk about Let's this. talk some more about Spawn Ranch because yeah. the sequence is great. It it's like, feels like it's 15 or 20 minutes, and then I love when he comes back to his car and it's got the knife in it. We hadn't really seen quite what— It's uh, from uh, The Killing by Bernard Herrmann. Cool. We couldn't really see—we haven't gotten a, a taste completely of what— you know, Cliff's capable of. And we don't really get it until the third act of the movie at at Rick's house. But we get a bigger tease here than even the Bruce Lee fight where he beats the fuck out of, what's his name, Clem? Clem. Clem, because Clem put a knife in his in his tire. And this is the first time you see Rick, it. Rick angry. I mean, Cliff angry, upset, like fucking, like he is going to murder somebody because that's not my, that's my boss's car. If something happens to that his car, then I get in trouble. Fix it. Mm -hmm. And he beats the 
pissed out of this guy with just three punches. I love the uh, the foot shot where it just he just launches into the air, but we yeah. just see the from the foot, and it's just fucking great. Great filmmaking and just three punches in the blood Slow spraying motion. everything, and also the great tease and reference of a western. You know, Rick's wear I mean, Cliff's wearing these mo- these wool moccasins or whatever moccasins, whatever fabric it is, and then the key rings and his keys kind of insinuate that he's like wearing cowboy boots with the spurs to get the sound of like. Every time he takes a step, the keys and these moccasins show that he's like a cowboy kind of. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's what I that's yeah. what I see when I yeah. watch it. Yeah, I think it kind of for a few shots right there. Yeah, I'd say they're a kind of leather. Moccasin. Yeah, and also we get teased with with Tex played by Austin Butler here, where he seems to be, you know, one of the leaders of the ranch. Squeaky and Tex are probably the leaders. Squeaky. When, when, <laughs> when Charlie's not there, Charles Manson's not there around, and they try to get Tex to come back. And I mean, he meets Cliff, and this is why Cliff recognizes him Both later. from Texas. Wait, I know you, Spawn Ranch. I remember your little white face. Your white little face. <laughs> and you were on a horsey. You were on a horsey. <laughs> I'm the devil. No, I was dumber than that. <laughs> Great like sequence. Rex. Basically, after this point, you know, Rick goes to Italy with Cliff to star in Spaghetti Hold well, on, let's, I, I, we were skipping something? Something. After the Spawn Ranch sequence, we kind of get the first resolution of the film where Cliff picks Rick back up from set and drives him home. And then Sharon also goes home. And and this is where we get what? The uh <laughs> is this the flash the fast fast forward, right? Yeah, we go to Italy. Yeah, we go fast forward yeah. to Italy and then Rick, so I, I really, yeah. I, voiceovers from Kurt Russell are great. Yes, even, yes, and, yes. Uh, even though he also has a, a role in the film, voiceovers of basically what's happening in Rick in Cliff's life. They go to Italy, star in some westerns. Uh, Rick has a very fruitful couple, uh, like six months there, yeah. and he's in a bunch of movies, not also, only just Carbucci. But, the filmmaking is amazing because he imitated the filmmaking of the errors in the genres, yeah, which is great. So not only did he star in Carbucci's films, but also did a movie for Antonio Margarita, Margariti, who is Margariti. obviously a reference to Inglorious Bastards. And he was in Nebraska Jim, Comanche Uprising, as well as a few others. And even like a James Bond Italian spoof kind of movie That's the, as yes, well. The Margariti where, film. where he jumps the bridge with a car. <laughs> so great. And um, they, he says, that, so Kurt Russell's voiceover on their way back, you know, this is basically the end of an era. Cliff is in the back and, and coach. But also, his- so uh, Rick made a ton of money, but his swanky apartment in Rome ate a, a bunch of that. Yeah. Also, he met his wife, Francesca, there. He he likes attention. Like, he adored adored the paparazzo. <laughs> it's funny because it says paparazzo. Yeah, paparazzi is also... Yeah. Paparazzi is plural version plural of paparazzo. For- <laughs> <laughs> it makes, it's just silly. It's a great joke. Um, but I love... I love all that. But also, um, Tarantino also points out the interesting thing about the spaghetti western filming style in Italy where they didn't record audio uh, for the actors. It was just... They just all spoke in whatever language and accents they all had. And that's why when you watch Sergio Leone movies and a few other of the directors, uh, the Spaghetti Westerns, essentially, the the, the dialogue never really lines up uh, perfectly. And sometimes it doesn't line up at all because some actors are speaking a different language, but they're being dubbed for English. So um, that's what he means when uh, Rick, Rick Dalton couldn't stand like the – the the filming so it's style like ridiculous yeah exactly so I love that reference to it 
Yeah, yeah. And then uh, so they come back. Francesca is actually the actress who plays her is Eli Roth's ex-wife. Oh, interesting. QT and Eli Roth are really good friends, obviously. Mm -hmm. Eli Roth's in in Glorious Bastards and helped film some of the footage specifically for the, um, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, the English pastors. No, yeah, but um, what's the uh, German sniper's name? Oh, um, fucking Solar. Yeah, Hans Frederick. Uh, Frederick Solar. Yeah. So he shot. He shot. Eli Roth shot the movie in the movie mm-hmm. for Inglorious Bastards of, of uh, mm-hmm. uh, Nation Nation's, Nation's Pride. Pride. Nation's Pride. So he actually filmed all that footage, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Now, Rick and Cliff are coming back, and they know it's an end of an era. And Rick even confesses to Cliff. At that restaurant while they're in Italy shooting some of those movies, that like, this is it. Like, I think this is, I can't afford you anymore. Um, and since I don't know what my career, what's happening with my career, you probably can't even stunt anymore, obviously. So I can't pay for you. It's the end of an era, buddy. And, and he's, he's going to be selling his house in the Hollywood Hills to get an apart, a condo with Francesca. Yeah. And basically live off the money. That's yeah. the plan. Cause his career is so up in the air. It's uncertain. Yeah. yeah. He has no idea what's going to happen in the future. And so they both agree. And Kurt Russell's voiceover says, there's, but they both and, and know. Close to wearing the wig. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> got, <laughs> they both know that when they get home, they're going to have a good old drunk and they're going to get wasted good one last, drunk. the end of an era, get messed up. And they go to Casa Vega. Yep. And then Sharon goes Sharon to the Mexican Ta- restaurant. Sharon with JC bring while she's pregnant. Now they go to El Coyote Mexican restaurants, which also Kurt Russell's voiceover says was the hardest night of the year, which made her feel especially pregnant in all the worst ways. Great detail. Thanks. Not you. I'm just saying the writing. Well, I mean, but also it's great it, putting it out. I brought it <laughs> up. like you wrote it. I thought you were complimenting. Thank you. I uh, actually wrote that personally myself. I, I thought you said great te- I thought you meant great detail bringing that up. But yeah. then we have this great, <laughs> incredible third act. Obviously, we get a tease of the acid cigarette earlier in the film when they're watching FBI together because Cliff's like, if I'm on a trip, I'm on a trip here and like wandering in the woods, not where I live. Like, so I'm going to stash this here. Uh, you can smoke some if you want. Just save some for me. And, and Rick's like, nah, I don't need acid. I don't need to trip out. Uh, my booze don't need a buddy. <laughs> <laughs> he drinks enough. He doesn't need the acid. But then we have this great, great little setup. Great. It's, uh, it's um, Pavlov's gun. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Incredible third act of the Manson family members, Tex, with the, those three girls coming to this neighborhood. Rick's, you don't remember their names? I don't remember everyone's <laughs> names. Text. <laughs> Something flower. I was messing Lady with you. Flower. I was messing with you, man. <laughs> so they get back, even though I love Kurt Russell's dialogue. He says, even though Rick was pissed drunk, he was making margaritas in the kitchen <laughs> at midnight. Making frozen margaritas. Cliff has to take Brandy for a walk. So while Rick's making the margaritas, Cliff takes the dog for a walk. With the and, cigarette. And with yeah. it's tonight the night. Why wow. not? <laughs> and then uh the hippies show and up on the road. Go. Like, what's what's that noise? Bunch of goddamn fucking hippies. It's a private road. <laughs> road. You don't belong here. <laughs> <laughs> you 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 hippies came out here and smoked dope on a dark road, didn't you? Listen, Dennis Hopper, back it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, great. Love, I love how Tex he's got his hand on his gun. He's he, he's tempted. But then he actually gets scared by Rick. Yeah. Rick scares him. He's a scary guy yeah. when he's all, all pissed drunk yeah. like that. And he's like, all right, sir, just let me turn it around. Quit, quit yelling just at me. Just back it up, numb nuts. <laughs> <laughs> it's Brad Road. You don't belong here. And then I love when they're at the bottom of the hill. That was Jake Cahill. Jake Cahill? I had a Jake Cahill lunchbox when I was when I was a kid. But then we see like how crazy some of these people are from the Manson family. Obviously, mm-hmm. the one played by Maya Hawk. 
loosely based on that really real character who was a witness. It didn't exactly happen the way where she took the keys and drove off because she was scared, but the Manson, the other three... It was funny. Texting the two yeah. girls, they are out for blood. They want to commit murder, and they want to kill somebody, and one of them gives them the idea of, like, like let's kill the people who taught us to be killers because yeah. every movie, every TV show is about murder. Let's kill them. Mm-hmm. Let's kill the people that did it on yeah, TV. That taught us how to do it. Yeah, exactly. And then um, we get that... In, in the trailer, we're sped up, but we get the tr- great shot of them backlit uh, in... I saw a Robert Richard interview where he said that so the the scene in the car, and then this and then the sequence where the the young pe- the Manson family are walking down the street, they're completely backlit and it's very dark, and Tarantino wanted it to be, you know he's he's expressing the like the dark nature of their souls with the lighting in the film, and with this lighting in the car and then the lighting with them walking on the street. There's it's purposely backlit where you can't see them being they're just like. They're all blacked, and then they're all black, and then they have the the fill in the light behind them. He purposely did that. That's all in, intentional to portray the the personas of them, truly evil, the darkness within them. And it's just a brilliant um, piece of lighting by Robert Richardson. All right, let's get the names. So we got Tex, played by Austin Butler. We have Flower Child, who's played by Maya Hawk, who deserts the others. Sadie is played by Mickey Madison. She was also in Scream Five, if you remember. She gets torched at the end of the film. And then also Katie, played by Madison Beatty. So those, so we have Tex, Sadie, and Katie. Katie's the one that tackles Cliff with the knife by accident. So basically, it's such a great setup because you forget Rick's even here because he takes his headphones, he takes his fucking whiskeys, his margarita, he goes in his floating chair and sits in his pool to listen to music and sing out loud with his eyes closed. <laughs> so fucking funny. And then Cliff is... Tripping out inside the house, the lights are too bright. You he, feel like he's very vulnerable because he's so high. He's like, he's like looking at his scenes, like, whoa, whoa, man, I'm doing the best I can here. Listen, under right. the circumstances. <laughs> but Brandy hears something, and then Tex breaks in the front door. He's got the gun out, and then it's just a great kind of standoff where uh-huh. it's kind we, of a Mexican standoff in a way because Cliff's so trained. <laughs> Cliff's just got his fucking finger. Are you re- wait? Are you are real? You real? <laughs> I'm as real as a donut, motherfucker. <laughs> Wait, I it's, know you. It's so funny. It's oh a great scene. Awesome butler. And then, awesome what, and then this, by the way. yeah, he's fucking talented as hell. Um, and there's a reason why Tarantino cast him, obviously. But I love when the when the girl comes out, comes in through the back door, and because he had already been look, talking to Tex, and then he looks at her, and he looks at Tex like, "Who the fuck's that?" Oh, <laughs> he's like, <"Who's> that? <laughs> But, but then also Cliff's realizing what's going on. He's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Is there anybody else here? Ah, oh, just somebody in the back just sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> but even this shows you how the Bruce Lee situation is still like not a controversy because Cliff is such a trained killer and fighter that even though high as fuck off acid, he is still takes out everybody in this room single-handedly, also with the help of Brandy. Brandy helps a lot. Brandy helps for she, sure. She chomps on those nuts, man. But he's smart. He has Brandy go after But all, there's a great shot. There's a great shot early in the scene where um, – so Tarantino does – Tarantino Richardson, they do this frame uh, very wide of Brandy on the couch, but Cliff's, Cliff's hand is in the foreground, and Brandy is very, like, bouncy, and she, like, wants to get – she wants to jump off the couch, but then – Cliff does this great hand gesture to stay. 
and it's very subtle, but it's in the foreground. You see his hand just go stop. So he's in control. That's when that's the first sign that he knows what's going on, and that he actually has a plan, and he's waiting for the right moment. And then when the right the when the right moment comes, oh my god, that Brandy just goes for first she goes for Tex's arm and just fucking tears it to pieces, and then she goes for his crotch. Oh my god, as a guy. Watching that lad the other night, I was just like, ah, it's horrible. Oh, my God. And also, the song that's playing in the background, dun, 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 Keep dun, Me dun. Hanging On, yeah. who's that by? Vanilla Fudge. I don't know. Vanilla Fudge, Keep Me, Keep You Keep Me Hanging On. Uh-huh. It just works so well with this scene. It really it does. It's in the remind, background yeah. the whole time. It kind of reminds me of the Gimp scene in you Pulp Fiction. You keep me hanging on. Oh, that's the song. Yeah, whoa, no, no, yeah. I think it works so well. It plays. It's playing in the background the whole time. Why don't you? But it's great. And then the breakdown. Obviously, Brandy's going after Tex with the gun. Then Cliff throws the oh my god food off. She runs at him right off Katie's face. Oh my god, Sadie's face. Oh my god. And then you feel that. And then you feel like oh the whole audience was like ah. Then her face is smashed in. Screaming like Nose broken. Katie tackles Cliff with the knife, and it's in his side. He's like, is that really in me right now? <laughs> and then, boom, takes her head, smashes against everything you can find. The smash, phone, smash, the smash, mantle smash, above smash. The, the fireplace until she's dead. And then Sadie gets the gun, firing it like crazy, falls through the glass into the pool with Rick. <laughs> Rick in the pool. But also, Tarantino's really great here. We think Cliff gets shot because he passes out. Yeah. When she, well, when, I, just, I just figured he got... It was from the blood loss. Is my no, when but I first the way he does it. Yeah, you're right. You're she's right. Firing yeah. wildly and then Cliff yeah. passes out. You think he he could be dead. Yeah. I I always I always thought it was just the blood loss from the knife. I thought the first he, time she, I saw it, I, I thought you got shot. First time I saw it, I thought she got an artery in the thigh. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, he, well, he times with the bullets really well. No, and no, then, you're right. You're yeah, right. You're right. Yeah. And then his <laughs> fucking Sadie falling into the pool because <laughs> Rick's 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 in the pool with the headphones. Singing. Has no idea what's going on. And this person. Screw, falls into the pool, firing himself, a gun. Firing a gun. Rick freaks out, but then like he gets out of the pool, he goes right. Tarantino teases the flamethrower too. Way earlier in the film, uh-huh. there's a shot inside of the pool house, and the flamethrower is on the ground. Oh yeah, it's when against Cliff the wall. Was in there. When, yeah, Cliff was in there. Yeah, it's just against the wall. Yeah, Cliff has to do his like cool little kung fu move to get up the wall. The flamethrower is just chilling there, and then the uh, fourteen fists of McCluskey music comes on. And he, he torches that hippie in the pool. It's Insane. funny because she had no bullets left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was out of bullets. It's amazing. This is the Insane. craziest. It's so fucking bonkers. I love every minute of it's it. It's so every funny. Second. Yeah. I, it lasts a while, too. It's it's a long sequence. And you're right. That song is great in that scene. It's really, really great in that scene. But my God, it is. I when I when That's one of the most entertaining scenes I've ever seen in my life. Whenever I watch it, I'm laughing. I'm screaming, I'm in shock, uh, I'm having a blast, and in theaters, it was just like the whole crowd was just alive, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's bonkers, and it shows how good of a friend Cliff Booth is to Rick Dalton, and Rick even tells him, you know, we find out Rick's okay, he's alive. Ah, uh, no coming come. to the hospital with me. Uh, how'd you know it was midnight, sir? Well, I was in my kitchen making margaritas. I looked up he's at the clock. He's drinking the margarita. <laughs> he's drinking a margarita. <laughs> in a giant mason jar. <laughs> it was about like 12.04, 12.05. And then Rick gets taken off. I mean, Cliff gets taken off in that ambulance. Tells him he's a good friend. And it's really sweet. And Bring me bagels. Bring me bagels tomorrow. And obviously, you could argue this changes both their lives forever. Because then 
JC brings next door. He sees Rick outside. He asks what happened, and then this introduces Rick to Sebring, and then obviously Sharon Tate. Then you can assume Roman Polanski at some point he gets invited over for drinks. It's really sweet, and the, the great thumbs, thumbs up. up. <laughs> you did it, man. Would you like to come over for a drink? Thumbs, thumbs up. up. <laughs> oh, hi, Sharon. I'm fine, thanks. <laughs> Are you? Is everybody okay? Well, well, the hippies ain't. Goddamn hippies ain't that's for sure. Is anyone? Are they dead? Yeah, my my uh, my friend killed uh, two of them. I torched one myself. Fried her out to a crisp. Wow! <laughs> wow! I got a flamethrower from the 14 fist of McCluskey. Yeah, yeah, I still got it. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, people are such big fans of him. He doesn't realize. <laughs> oh my god! Anything man. we do about that heat, Rick? It's a flamethrower. It's a flamethrower, Rick. I trained with that dragon for for three weeks, not just because I wanted to look cool, but also because you don't. It's dangerous as hell. You don't want to be caught on the other end of that dragon. So good, because uh, isn't Rick's from St. Louis? I think or came, or Missouri. Yeah, he's from Missouri. That's where the accent comes uh-huh. from. There's also the, so the movie ends with this great. Um, they did a few tracking shots uh, over the houses. Yeah, there's one earlier. Uh, yeah, earlier. one earlier in the film that's just fantastic to see. I mean, it's 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 you don't think about. It. I mean, yeah, I, I think about it, obviously. And I'm sure everyone else does. But you like you're home. You're living right next to other people, and you know even though you don't spend any time there, like you're basically sharing space with other people who have property right next to you. You know what I mean? You're just divided by a fence that you can't see over. Um, so I think it's interesting, the shots where he uh, shows both sides of like a property of, of a fence and the two people living on either side of the property, just with the one camera move um, tracking over the, over the roofs. And it's a really stunning shot both times, but it's a great way to end the film. Yeah, the first time that they do yeah. it is when Rick's practicing his lines with the whiskey sour in the pool, mm-hmm. and it goes over the houses to get to Polanski and Sharon Tank when they're going out yeah. to go to the party. Yeah. And he ends the movie. I love how we don't even get like a close up of Rick with Sharon just Tate the at all. It's just a distance yeah. of you hear their voices and also the kind of tone and music similar to kind of Rosemary's Baby themes, just like that odd fairy tale. Like there's something off. You I know? do. I'm not sure if there's something off, but I do think that it's uh. For a Tarantino movie, it's a happy ending, just like Kill Bill. No, yeah, I'm not saying it's not a happy ending. It's just yeah. the music is reminiscent of Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. But see, he sometimes has some very happy endings. Kill Bill, too, is a, is a very happy ending, you know? It's, it's, I could have had baby! could have had baby! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, crying in the, in the bathroom. Yeah. Yes. Well, crying. not crying in the bathroom, but just them two driving the car is the last shot. Well, she's crying in the bathroom of with pain, but also then of joy. Yeah, yeah, and then no, the last shot is them sitting on the bed watching yeah. TV. That's yeah. the last shot of them laughing. Yeah, it's so sweet. And then, um, <laughs> what's another happy ending? <laughs> Hateful Late is the opposite of a happy ending. It's Everybody kind of a happy it. ending. It's fun. It's a fun ending. To, you know what? When the hangman <laughs> gets you, you hang. <laughs> I love that ending. Honestly, I, honestly, the Hateful Late might be my favorite ending in a Tarantino movie. It's pretty awesome. Where they hang her. And they're both, like, fucking bleeding out. It's great. <laughs> it's pretty I fucking awesome. love that ending. It's just like, why the fuck not? Let's fucking hang her. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, um... There's no more... No. Oh, yeah, Death Proof has a happy ending where they beat the shit out and kill Kurt Russell's character. Stop me, Mike. And it's just, like, a great, like... Bup! They just take turns punching and kicking him in the face. <laughs> Chronologically, I mean, Pulp Fiction has that happy ending where Butch and Fabian get away. Yeah, but... Vincent dies. I'm just saying Butch and Fabian. Not that happy. Butch and Fabian have an happy ending. They have a happy ending, yeah. Yeah, they, they get do. away. Yeah. Everyone else is fucking dead. Everyone else, yeah, it's not happy for anyone else. Yeah, I'm just saying, that's why I said Butch and Fabian. Yeah, yeah. Reservoir Dogs, definitely not a happy ending. 
Um, <laughs> definitely. Not. Django has a happy ending. Django, yeah, yeah. Has I mean, even ending. though uh, Schultz dies, yeah. Django and Brumhilda. Yeah, he says right away in the yeah. in the moonlight together. Django, and then Glorious Bastards. I mean, it's got it's a happy happy ish. Kill Bill One doesn't have a happy ending. It has a badass ending. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of tossing her down the They'll hill. They'll all be dead as. They'll all be good as dead. Dun, dun, dun. I want you to know because I want him to know. <laughs> I want him to know that I want him to know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. But um, yeah, this is a uh, happiest ending. But hateful eight's my favorite ending. Nice. Wow. I, wow. That pretty much covers once well, upon let me see a time if I have in Hollywood. Yeah, you got any fun facts that we didn't mention? <clears throat> oh, so uh, the producers obviously had initial difficulties convincing Hollywood Boulevard vendors to allow their premises to be fitted with new period facades to better reflect the 1960s for filming. However, after the production wrapped on the film, and that section of, shoot, of the shoot was done, most of these vendors asked if they could leave the period set facades in place since they now preferred that period look for their storefronts. I thought it was fun. I was like, you guys said no at first, but now you're like, can we keep it? Please let us keep it low, please! <laughs> Uh, blah 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 blah. Um, one second. So when Cliff recognizes the Manson family members from his visit to the Spawn Ranch, he can't remember Tex Watson's name. Tex responds by saying, "I'm the devil, and I came to do the devil's business." The real life Tex Watson actually said this exact phrase to the victims at Sharon Tate's house before they were murdered. The witness heard him say that. So it's an actual line she pulled from the actual person. Tex is actually also portrayed in Mindhunter. I believe it's the same episode as the Charles Manson oh, character. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, the music after Cliff kills the intruders, here's your, your bit that you were just talking about, uh, when the police arrive and Rick goes to meet Sharon and Tate, is from The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, directed by John Huston, the great Western director, and starring Paul Newman in the title role. It's appropriate because the title card at the beginning of that movie says, maybe this isn't the way it was, but it's the way it should have been. So a theme for the whole movie, hence the song. That's it for Fun Facts. All right, well, that wraps our almost three-hour episode on Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I hope you all love this movie and adore it as much as we do. And I kind of want to watch it already again after <laughs> seeing it last week and then doing an entire episode on it because it's such a well-made movie. I think it gets better every watch. It's going to age like fine wine. It's incredible. I love these characters. Some of my favorite that favorites that Tarantino's ever created. I'm really excited because I'm also reading the book like I brought up earlier, the novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's, it's So far, it's awesome. I really enjoy it. But we really appreciate you tuning in to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast today to support the show the best way possible. And leave those five-star reviews on Spotify and Apple. Nah, I was done on that. <laughs> See you Bunch next time. goddamn fucking hippies. It's a prior road. <laughs> <laughs> fucking hippies. All right. See you next time, everyone. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian, Tyler McFly, and Sal Koching. Our chosen one patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit the like button as well, notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel.